the Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Mr. Russell. Hey. Thank you very much for doing this, man. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, thank you. It's uh, We were saying right before the podcast got started, it's always a weird thing when, when people sit down. It's like you don't want to talk too much because there's so much to say on the air. You don't want to get it out before you get to air. But I was saying it's very it's appropriate having you on today because we're just now going to war mm. with Syria. Right. And uh, we, were, uh, we were just talking about how bizarre this ISIS thing is and how it's just... American people said, you know, we don't want to go to war with Syria. It was this big thing. And Obama was on television. Everybody just openly rejected it, left and right. It was pretty much the American public was like, we're done with war. Like, we want to get out of Afghanistan. We don't want this Iraq thing anymore. We don't want to go to Syria. And so everything just sort of calmed down. And then all of a sudden, ISIS rose up from the from the ashes. <laughs> and this ISIS thing, I, different names, ISIS, I, I've seen it, ISIL. Right. Yeah. And um, like I, I was saying, I don't like to get conspiracy oriented because it's so easy to do. But if you wanted to, you would say, well, this is obviously, they've come up with a mechanism to get us into Syria. Yeah, sure. I mean, so there's two kinds of conspiracies. There's an open conspiracy, and then there's a closed conspiracy, right? So I think this is sort of an open conspiracy. A lot of people are saying, both left and right, by the way, that ISIS was really a creation of American foreign policy. Not that there were a bunch of dudes sitting in a room in the White House with cigars and saying, hey, we need to create this monster in order to sort of impose American will abroad, but that through many, many conscious decisions over many years in the Middle East, through direct interventions militarily and otherwise, they created the conditions for this bunch of psychopathic 20-year-olds with RPGs and swords beheading people, right? So, you know, creating a vacuum in Iraq, right, by going to war there, by removing the dictator who was at least con holding control over the people and over people like this, uh, funding the rebels in Syria, and also, more importantly, a lot of people miss this, you know, what's one of the things that's been happening, if you look at it just from a material standpoint, over the last 12 years at least, is that the United States has been flooding that area with weapons, right? So, and if you look at, there's a great piece, I think it was in The Guardian uh, a few weeks ago, uh, the ISIS is using American-made weapons, right, that have been coming into that region, mostly into Iraq, but elsewhere for just decades, right? So it's just, it creates this, it creates a situation where uh, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, sort of an open, open conspiracy, because you could certainly say that American foreign policymakers, and all of them really, and that's Bush, and that's Obama, and that's all of them, really want to have an American presence, a military strong, a military presence around the world, and in particular in the Middle East, where all the oil is. So, you know, it's not that I'm not saying it was deliberate that they it wasn't a deliberate choice to create this beast that's called ISIS, but it certainly serves their purposes. And it seems like if you I mean, if if you look at the entire situation in the Middle East, it seems like there's no good way to just get out of there. Hmm. It seems like mm -hmm. is there? I mean, please tell me. 
you I mean, think there's I, a way to... Yeah, I mean, so I'm an out-now guy. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was the answer in Vietnam, right? That's, right. What the, that's what the anti-Vietnam War called for for many, many years, was out-now. Not, mm-hmm. not a gradual withdrawal, which is what the politicians called for, beca- because that's the, quote, responsible thing to do, but out-now. And I think history proves that was the correct answer to that, right? I think that if the United States had left immediately in 1964, 65, name a year, name a time, it would have been a better thing for everyone. Now, communism... Would have the communists would have taken control of Vietnam, but they did anyway, right? And so what we had was instead of about two million people, mostly civilians, die, right? We would have had far fewer. We would have, would have had the same outcome essentially, but with far fewer. And then also, and we got to talk about blowback, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, the the carpet bombing of not just Vietnam but several countries during that war caused untold numbers of people to hate our fucking guts, right? America's guts. And that, you know, uh, that's blowback, right? They didn't come and fly airplanes into our buildings, but, you know, it was anti-American in many ways. And it also served, and here's a very important thing, it served the interests of the goddamn communists, right? Because it's, because the communists could say, look at these barbarians coming here and killing our children and women, right? You should support us. We will protect you from them. So it actually played into the hands of the communists. And the very same thing is happening and has been happening in the Middle East for many, many years. David Petraeus, of all people, said before the Senate about three years ago, he said, U.S. funding of Israel in particular, U.S. funding of all these corrupt regimes in, in, the, in the Middle East and our interventions is the number one recruiting tool for al-Qaeda, right? And it's the number one recruiting tool for ISIS. They say, look, Here's these infidels who have been invading us and killing our people and taking control of our resources for decades, right? We will, we will fight back for you, right? And so it, it's, 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 uh, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you want to maintain a presence there, which they do, the United States does. You keep creating your own enemies to fight against. It's perpetual. So what could be – is there anything that can be done to mitigate the disastrous effects of us pulling out and creating this power vacuum. Is there anything that can be done? I mean, once we're already there, we can't go back in time. We can't stop the Iraq invasion. It would Mm -hmm. be nice if we could. Pretty much no one thinks it's a good idea now. Today, in hindsight, everyone thinks it was a terrible idea. The only good that came out of it was getting Saddam Hussein out, getting rid of his psychopathic sons. But now look at all the shit you have there, and you have a million people dead. Right. So the anti-interventionist argument is simply that pretty much every interve- intervention has a negative consequence. Right. So, so the less, the better. <laughs> right. So my position is let's do none, right? But when you have a guy like a Hitler or someone along those lines that's causing genocide and planning to take over the world and... So, but, uh, so, you, so for Hitler, right, there's a, a large stream of thought among historians, a very respectable stream of thought, that the Nazis rose to power out of conditions created by the Allies after World War I. <laughs> so that, you know, extracting all these resources through forced payments from the Germans as reparations after World War I uh, really laid the groundwork for the rise of this, this totalitarian who said, hey, look what those Westerners did to us. They decimated this country. They shamed us. They brought us into shame and degradation. We need a strong, powerful leader. We need discipline. We need order. We need to get rid of these foreign influences like Jews, who were considered to be foreign, right, in essence, because they were a nationalist people, uh, and the communists who had allegiance to no state, right? Um, And so, 
many people have argued, not just wacko conspiracy theorists, that that it was actually American and Western foreign policy in the early 20th century that really made the rise of Nazism possible. Like that's the greatest, possibly the greatest example of blowback in human history. That's a crazy example of blowback. It, it seems like it's a perpetual cycle then. It seems like everything we've ever done in the past has led us to do more things in the future to combat the blowback from the things we've done in the past. And yeah. Yeah, so I mean, if you look at but if you look at the history of foreign policy, and by the way, that's the book I'm working on now. Uh, so this is a very appropriate topic for me. Um, you know, you will see, beginning really even in the early 19, early in the early 18th century, uh, with uh, or not sorry, late 18th century with some of the founding fathers, but certainly through the 19th century and certainly through the 20th century, one continuous thread among policymakers, which is we must change the world in our image. Right. I mean, that's been bipartisan. It's been the left. It's been the right. It's been I mean, the liberals and the conservatives. It's been the Democrats and the Republicans for centuries now. We must have America abroad. Now, not everyone agreed with that. There were people in the Senate who were sort of isolationists or anti-interventionists. But that's been a pretty there's been a near consensus among American politicians for about two centuries that we should expand what is great about America. And unfortunately, that has meant killing a lot of people. Well, that's what everyone's terrified of with the Islamic. Islamic State is that they want to impose Sharia law throughout the rest of the world. Right. I mean, that's what everyone's afraid of. The, the, the religion of America, the, uh, you know, what we subscribe to versus the religion of Sharia law. Yeah, so um, I have an answer for that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so good luck motherfuckers imposing <laughs> Sharia law on the whole world, right? And so what my, a lot of what my work is on now, and I'm not the only one who's done this, is to look at what's actually going on, you know, in places like Tehran and in places like Riyadh and in places like Cairo. Um, what are the what are sort of ordinary folks, Iranians and Egyptians and Saudis actually doing all day long? And you can figure it out really quickly by simply looking at the skyline in those cities. And what you'll see is you'll see these big apartment buildings, these big cinder block apartment buildings. And on top of those cinder on on top of those apartment buildings are dozens, sometimes hundreds of satellite dishes, which are streaming in Fox, The Simpsons. Porn, like you wouldn't believe. During the porn, Iran. They love porn. Middle East the, and Pakistan. Google did. Google has announced for several years. Pakistan is the leading country in the world for searches for the word sex. Whoa! And then, in particular, uh, also interesting, uh, uh, searches for gay sex, like terms, like gay sex terms, like anal sex and hmm. men, men, man on man, or whatever. The Middle East is like leading the world in that, right? And they, what they love is they love American nasty pop culture and Western nasty pop culture. They love, they love women in bikinis and they love whiskey and they love stupid, you know, they love Jersey Shore and the rest of it. Stuff that we look down on. And actually what it's doing, my argument is, is that it's subverting the hell out of Sharia law every single day. But you, but you say we look down on it, but we obviously well, create it, support it, and probably consume more of it than anybody when I, else when anywhere, I say, anywhere. When I say we, I mean uptight. You and I? Up, no, well, I know, I know I mean uptight professors like the ones I oh. deal with, not like normal people. <laughs> well, you, you've been fired yeah. from, from being uh, like a little too controversial. Yeah. I read uh, an article about you in yeah. the Huffington Post that you wrote. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, what, what was that all about? <clears throat> well, I mean, um, so I, uh, you know, I was trained at Columbia University, got my PhD there in American history, and uh, sort of found that, like, um, uh, historians in general, but in particular the historians I was being trained by, you know, they consider themselves to be left-wing and radical, 
but that, there was a real limitation on that. And one of the limitations was that they had a real disdain for what normal people do all day long, like what they're doing in Riyadh and Tehran. Uh, they had a real disdain for sort of the, the normal activities of working class ordinary folks. Like they thought that what people watched on TV was retarded and should not be studied and shouldn't, they shouldn't be doing it. Um, it wasn't, that's not real history. That's not what's really going on. What you should be studying is the Senate and you should be studying sort of economics and you should be studying foreign policy. And what I found was, you know, first of all, that's what, of course, most Americans do is they consume that kind of stuff much more than they do political speeches, right? And more importantly, kind of in that popular culture, and in particular, the stuff that we most look down on, what you'll find is stuff like sex and freedom and drugs and drinking and freedom and people doing what they want to do, sort of opposed to and against kind of our Puritan tradition, right? So that America has always been split between its Puritanism, which is really powerful still, in particular in our formal culture, like in politics and what they tell us in schools, right? And, and, and hedonism, which is what we get in popular culture, right? So it's this, we were this very weird schizophrenic culture, right? There's this conflict between the two. And what I found was that people who call themselves left-wing and radical are actually really wedded to the puritanical side that they, they're really about people being disciplined and controlled and working hard and the work ethic and all that stuff. And I, and I know you, you've talked about, I've heard you talk about the work ethic on here and elsewhere, but and we can get into what that actually means because there's also confusion about what that means. Mm -hmm. But I was sort of frustrated. I was like, first of all, yo, I'm walking the streets of New York City when I went to Columbia, and I, nobody looks like these people in my history books, including Rosa Parks, who's on your wall here, and Martin Luther King, who had a lot, and we can talk about this, this is a big part of my book, a lot, those people were extremely conservative culturally, extremely conservative culturally, and looked down upon and scolded black people for black culture, for things like jazz and rock and roll. Martin Luther King was opposed to rock and roll called it the devil's music people don't know this yeah so um so i started looking at that i started looking at these new heroes and the new social history you know these left-wing activists and people like rosa parks and martin luther king and feminist suffragists and all that and i found it like they actually agreed with the puritans about things like sex and work that sex is terrible and work is awesome and virtuous. So I got very frustrated. I started writing my lectures and my classes at Barnard College, which is the women's college affiliated with Columbia. I started looking at American history through that lens. I started looking at American history through the lens of this conflict, this eternal conflict between discipline and order and community and nation on one hand and Puritanism. And on the other hand, popular culture and sex and freedom and desire. And I found this whole new way of telling the story. And I found all these people on one side sort of just behaving on their own, doing the things they wanted to do that were violating these puritanical principles. People like prostitutes, people like drunks, people like criminals, people like gays, people like slaves who were dancing when you weren't supposed to dance. And on the other hand, all these guardians of the moral order who weren't just the founding fathers uh, and the generals and the inventors, but it was people like abolitionists who were opposed to slavery, but they were opposed to slavery for funky reasons we can talk about. Uh, uh, and suffragists who wanted women to be really just as upstanding as men and to not drink and not have sex, etc. Um, and so I gave lectures. I was given the um, Introduction to American History course at Columbia <laughs> they because they didn't know what I was up to. <laughs> <laughs> and because it's a weird thing, it's one of the strangest industries. There's no oversight over what you're doing in your classrooms. No one ever comes and watches what you say. 
it's a very strange thing in higher education. Professors, 99% of the time, just go into the classroom and their colleagues have no idea what they're saying. Does that become an issue with ego? Because uh, I, I find that any time when you get one person that gets to communicate to a large group of people and they have to listen to you, especially if parts of their future rely upon you, mm-hmm. like their, your grades, your, your GPA, you know, it's important to pass this class. And so this person has this position of power and influence that's very unusual. Sure. And because of that, a lot of times people they, that they get into that position of being a professor, they push their ideology in a very rigid and inflexible way. I'm right. You are wrong. I am older. You are younger. I am smart. You are dumb. Absolutely. And it's All the time. gross. Abs- I agree. So what I have to say about that is that we all, we all come at questions through our own ideologies, right? No one, there's no, I don't think there's any such thing as an objective history or an objective political science. I mean, I think we all talk about these things through our own biases and our own lenses, right? First of all, I think what we should do is just admit it and be honest about it. And that's what I try to do in my classes. I try to say, hey, you know what I just told you? That's my interpretation. That's not the truth. I never tell the truth. <laughs> I only tell people what I think, right. <laughs> and w- with an argument, right? Right. Um, and the second thing is, and this is what the, this is the real problem I think in higher education, which makes me makes me crazy every single day, is that right now higher ed, in particular in the social sciences and humanities, is on lockdown by the academic left. Okay. Mm. And I come out of the left, and I'm left wing in a lot of ways, and in some ways I'm not. But what I hate is that there's just almost no variety of discourse on college campuses that pretty much, there's been studies done, I mean, like 95% of English and history professors voted for Obama, right? I mean, that tells you right there that there's not a whole lot of debate going on. Why do you think that is? <clears throat> why, why is yeah. academia and the left sort of inexorably connected? Yeah, well, so um, when a lot of left academics are asked this, the answer that they give you is, we're smarter. <laughs> right, right. So that we, it's just if you're intelligent and study, you will come to that position. Now, is it because the right is kind of inexorably connected to religion? Because Christianity and the right are pretty much inseparable. Well, at but this even point. even libertarians who are atheists right. get run out of the house. You can't mm. get a job as a libertarian. Wow. Um, no, I mean, so it's it's all historical, right? So if you look at the history of higher education, and a lot of people forget this, you know. Uh, higher education in this country is only about two centuries old, and as a, as a major mass institution, I mean, it, uh, the right right wing conservatives controlled the joint until the 1960s, right? So what was being taught at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Cal and UCLA uh, was things like capitalism is awesome and black people are inferior and women should be in the home. I mean, it was conservatives had that whole place on lockdown. Uh, there was a monoculture on the, on the campuses. Then what comes along is the 1960s and all those movements, all those social movements. So the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, feminist movement, et cetera, et cetera. And what happened was those people, because their movements either sort of succeeded and they considered were considered to be done, or they couldn't succeed, they couldn't really create a radical a revolution, the kind that they wanted, the only place they found that they could go and have a job <laughs> was colleges as professors. So they, en masse... Though that generation, the new left of the 1960s, went into graduate school, and they all became professors, and that's who's been basically teaching college for the last 50 years. Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm of the generation that was trained by them, and so there there's some changes going on, but basically most even most people my age, I'm in my 40s, but my, in my generation, most of us are still sort of influenced by that generation. So it was this very concerted 
not a conspiracy, but it was a pretty deliberate attempt. In some ways, it was conscious to take over the university. That that was the that was the only place we could have this radical discourse and get paid for it and have a career, mm. right? And influence the youth. And influence the youth, which is yeah. one of the things that drives uh, a lot of parents crazy. You know, oh, yeah. maybe parents that have a different ideology yeah. to send their kid off to school, and the kid comes back with. Like some really, sure. you know, white privilege, male privilege, sure. all I'm, this. I'm a victim. Lefty talk. Yeah, yeah the yeah. I'm a victim stuff is strong and it's very disempowering. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. It's confusing too because I don't know if you know this case um, this, uh, from Occidental College. Occidental University? Is that That's what where I is? teach, man. Is that where Occident- you teach? Yeah, Occidental College. Yeah. Oh. Down the road. Okay. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Okay. Do you know the story about the uh, the two young kids? Uh, they were freshmen. They yes, were going through the hazing thing. Oh. They both get drunk. Yes. And they have sex. Yes. And the guy yes. gets expelled yes, they're both, for sexual assault. They're both drunk. They're, yeah. Not only are they both drunk, but the girl texts her friend, I'm about to yeah. go have sex, texts him, do you have a condom? Yeah. He says yes. Yeah. He says get over there. She says I'm on my way. Yeah. She goes over there, and they decide that it's sexual assault because the girl had been drinking. Even yeah. though the guy had also been drinking, it's yeah. sexual assault. The guy gets kicked out of college. He's in the middle of a lawsuit. I mean, and when you're 18 years old, your life is thrown into a turmoil. Yeah. I mean, he's kicked out of school for having sex while drunk with a girl who was sex while drunk. Yeah. The, so you're about to get me fired. Again, really? Again, yeah. Thanks. Uh, for this? Thanks, man. Um, Please, speak out. Yeah, no, I... <laughs> God. So this, this sexual assault, either, depending on your point of view, epidemic or hysteria, <laughs> the epicenter of it has been Occidental where I've taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started about two years ago. We can, This is a long conversation to have. Please. But, I think it's an important one, okay. though, because it's confusing right. as hell. Okay. <sighs> Boy. Okay. <laughs> so what happened was in 2010 or 2011, the United States Department of Education sent a letter to every university and college in the country that receives federal aid of some kind, which is basically all of them, right, because of student loans. Those are backed by the federal government. And said, if you if you want to continue receiving federal aid for your students... You must adjudicate every case, uh, every accusation, every accusation of sexual assault on your campus among students, okay? Which means you have to have like, basically a tribunal uh, of staff and maybe students, but usually it's staff and faculty, right? So it's a panel of like three or four English professors and the dean of students and the facilities guy or whoever, and maybe some students asking, you know, Uh, adjudicating this case so the woman says uh well we were both drunk and what you know whatever she tells her story and he tells his story and says i absolutely did not rape him she says he absolutely did rape me because there's no witnesses almost ever in these cases right what what can they then do to decide who's responsible here or is there someone who's responsible and what they do is and i've talked to people who have been on these boards the only thing you can do is ask about their sexual histories so you have you have English professors asking 19-year-olds how many times they've had sex in the last year, what kinds of sex, with whom, how did they feel about it, and then asking the guy the same things, right? And then from that information, and usually it's only that, because that's all you got in most cases, right, with acquaintance rape, it's two people in a, in a room, a dark room, then with the door closed almost always. There's no evidence, right? There's no physical evidence. There's no witnesses usually. From that, they determine responsibility. Um, so that's basically what happened in this case. Uh, it's, and the other thing that's, so that's a nightmare in a lot of ways, right? I mean, talk about seeking, ju- that's, that's justice, right? It's and, very bizarre also that this idea has come out of 
what a lot of people believe to be what what you would call feminism. Yeah. And what feminism is supposed to push for is equality. Right. But not equality when it comes to responsibility for your sexual actions right. while you're intoxicated. Right. So one of the things that's that's been infuriating for a lot of people and a lot of feminists, by the way, is that, you know, in response to and uh, acquaintance rape definitely fucking happens. Definitely. You know, no question about it. No question. We know people, I know people very closely what's happened to this. Not no only that, we should also say that getting someone drunk and fucking them because you know they're drunk sure. is gross and sure. it is rape. Sure, yeah. Um, um, or at least getting them loaded to the point where they can't figure out what the fuck is going on. Right. So one of the th- one of one answer that's been proffered by many people, many feminists including, has been to say, hey, don't get blackout drunk at the frat house on Friday night <laughs> to women, right? And that has been called victim blaming. Right. Okay, so you know about this, right? So right. Now, if you were to leave it at that, right, say that is the sole answer to this problem, you know, tell women not to get drunk at the frat house on Friday night, maybe that is victim blaming, but that's not what any of us are saying, right? Well, that's like saying don't the Rutgers kid that got killed by a bear two days ago, hmm. don't run from bears. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. Yeah. Is that victim blaming? No, right. it's it's fucking wise advice if right. you want to survive a bear attack. Sure, exactly. Don't run. They chase. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a daughter, but I have a son. But, you know, if I had a daughter, goddamn right, I'm going to tell her not to get blackout drunk at the frat house. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you're going to try to stop me and tell me that's that's blaming my daughter. Um, I don't think don't, so. I don't think guys should get blackout drunk at the frat house sure, either. Sure, yeah, right. It's not good for you. <laughs> and, and, for bad anybody. Things, and people fall off of roofs at frat houses and die from it. Yeah, right? yeah. and there are people that will take advantage of you, and not just sexually. They'll sure. Do, there's vicious people that will do things to you if they think you're passed out. Absolutely. It's just not smart. Yeah, so feminism, um, this particular brand of it, um, one of the things that's not talked about much, and I, I try to talk about this, um, is that it uh, it takes agency away from women, right? So it's like it's it's basically saying that women are helpless before these rapists, you know. And what we all we can do is moralize against the rapists and tell them they're bad. Now, many of those feminists have agreed that it's a very very tiny percentage of men who are rapists, and that most rapes are con- committed by something like four percent of men, or something like that, or less than four percent. Um, so what are you going to do? You're going to tell those guys, those serial rapists, most of them are ser- serial rapists, that they're bad and they shouldn't rape? How effective is, is that really going to be? Less f- f- even if it's 1%, or it's one like, out of 100 guys. No, no, no. It's, uh, sorry. It's, it's of, of the rapes committed for, uh, what is it? <laughs> it's 4%, 4% of the rape. I don't know. It's something like. It's really hard. It's a very do, tiny percentage. It's really hard to do statistics yeah. with rape, too, because yeah. a lot of people don't report rape and they're embarrassed yeah. and yeah. ashamed. And We do have, well, we do have uh, the Bureau of Justice, uh, Department of Justice has conducted uh, pretty massive surveys of women. So this is not reported crimes. This is just they went and, and asked women questions about their history with assault. And there's been this massive decline in rapes and sexual assault since the 1990s, um, like more than 60% decline. So also the talk of a rape epidemic um, and a rape culture now, I think is overblown. I mean, of course, there are elements in our culture that are definitely rape cultures, right? I mean, there's no doubt, you know, there's little corners here and there, Mm -hmm. but the dominant culture is not a rape culture. Right. And my issue is that the people that are crying out for this, especially the men, 
they they're so it's so suspect it's so white nighty like the whole thing about it it's these really emo feminist men (laughs) who just look like they're just clamoring for female acceptance and love and appreciation and they're just going way out of their way to talk about this and i can understand if this is a personal issue i can understand that anybody would be concerned that a human being would take advantage of another human being, but to make it your primary concern, to make it like this this thing that you focus and con- concentrate on on a regular basis all the time, it's like a, almost like a rape fetish, yeah. a rape or victimization fetish. And mm. this, this apologizing... Vo- Do you remember that video that came out, uh, Dear Women? It was one of the most horrific videos ever. It was widely mocked. <laughs> But it was these like really fucked up, socially retarded men who made this video where they were apologizing oh, no. for all the things that women had to endure from men. But these guys were just creepy, fucking weirdos. Like undin- You've never seen this? No. I got to play it for okay. you. Because it's beautiful. Sure. It's beautiful and it's ridiculous. So, yeah. So, but here's the thing about that. You know, it's like the, the, mess- the other message in that is that it's for men to save women. Right. Exactly. Excuse me, feminist, feminism was about women liberating themselves, right? We can't do it for them. We cannot do it for them, right? So talking to men, talking to those serial rapists about how bad they are and how bad this is, what exactly is that going to accomplish, A? And B, it's putting, it's, it's putting the responsibility on men and it's saying women must be saved, which is like, right. that is the soul of conservatism, mm-hmm. right? To say that we must come save this our social inferiors, that is like the essence of old school patriarchy and conservatism. Mm-hmm. It is to me anti-feminist to the bone, and that's what no one's talking about. Yeah, this well, this idea that the women can't consent because they've had a couple of drinks is is a weird issue because there yeah. is clearly there's a scale. Yeah, there's a couple of drinks where you're getting silly and you you do you might mean you might fuck somebody in a regretful way, like say oh, I shouldn't have slept with that guy, but it's not rape. But they want to call that rape. But you then know- there's blackout drunk which is rape sure and somewhere along the line it becomes right. reprehensible Absolutely. whether it's three drinks in or four drinks in I mean, you could, it's debatable sure um do you know about the bill in the in the california legislature that's about to be the law of the land most likely no so yeah they're gonna they're it's probably gonna pass <clears throat> um so that it's applied to all state schools in california um which defines sexual assault and rape uh in many ways that completely put all of us in the category of rapist because it includes it includes having sex with someone when they're intoxicated anyone yeah so I, so your I, girlfriend boyfriend yeah. and girlfriend have a couple of drinks yeah. laughing and giggling yeah. they make out they have sex yeah and they don't even they don't even put a um a sort of a threshold on how many drinks it <sighs> takes so i'm you know ser- i'm a serial rapist according to this law. we all are according yeah, to this well, law yeah what, so. and what is intoxication there's yeah. intoxication that's the limit of alcohol intoxication when you're driving which right. a lot of people are debating <clears throat> is too low right. that that would be legally applied to sex right so there's another thing that's very you see i one of the things i do is i sort of try to expose how conservative a lot of the left is because mm-hmm. they don't even, don't even realize it this is this is really conservative right so it's like it's micromanaging our sex lives um and, you know, it's saying that sex, that the state must come in and protect us from each other, 
and it must the state must come in or the college administration must protect women from these from sex well from demons and yeah, the yeah demons are the yeah, males yeah, yeah. absolutely the no, males but, are but demons. not just demons from sex itself like sex is seen mm-hmm. as this sort of right. dangerous harmful thing it's just, it's sort of set apart from everything else in the world well especially then if you say even if you it's consensual and you're conscious and you're awake and you enjoy it and you have fun if you're intoxicated yeah. it is rape yeah the con- that's why that because it's sex that case in occidental that you raised i mean so they say and i've read the whole report okay by the college the report says by the college this was consensual sex okay period and when i read that i said okay case closed then i read that he gets expelled because they were both drunk (laughs) you know i don't know what to say about that other than this is lunacy and it's it's, but it's also, it's deeply conservative. And I'm, I hate- It's also deeply sexist. How and deeply the sexist. Guy, how does the guy get expelled and, and the girl doesn't? And deeply sexist. Exactly, right. That's sexist. Ex- I agree. It's I, agree. Cr- I mean, no, look, no one got hurt. There were kids that liked each other. They were attracted to each other and they had sex. They were communicating with each other back and forth through text. It wasn't like she didn't like this guy. Yeah. It wasn't like, yeah, she was most certainly drunk. But she also was saying to her friend, I'm going to go have sex with this guy. Right. The fact that that's not an open and shut case, it exposes the lunacy of this ideology that if exposed to the, the vast majority of intelligent adult Americans, they right. would just, they would put their foot down and go, wait, wait, what the fuck did you just say? No, I agree. What's going on? I totally agree. Like, this is a bubble. This ideology yeah. is this weird. It is a bubble. Yeah, I agree. It's a, I mean, it's, I think it's mostly hysteria. Um, uh, however, look. You know, we agree, you know, rape happens. Acquaintance rape happens. Yes. Husbands rape wives. Yes. Boyfriends rape uh, girlfriends all the time, right? It's very... Boyfriends rape boyfriends. Boyfriends rape... Oh, well, you want to talk about prison? So you know that men get raped more often than women in this culture. Yeah, but they're raped by men, so it's really... It's a kind of a moot point. <laughs> How's that? Just shows men are pieces of shit. Oh, we yeah. rape each other. <laughs> well, sure. When there's I mean, no women to rape, we just rape. Yeah, the rape rates in prison are absolutely horrifying and underreported. Yeah. Um, no, but so what do we do about it, right? And so here's the here's sort of the intrinsic problem with rape, and especially acquaintance rape. There's very rarely any evidence. There's very rarely eyewitnesses. There's very rarely physical evidence. Even if there is physical evidence, you can't prove that that bruise proves that this guy raped right. you, right? So what do you do, right? It's a tough question. And I understand that that's what people are kind of trying to struggle with and they're trying to come up with these new devices to stop it from happening. I think the devices they're coming up with are terrible. But what do we do? And, you know, um, so one thing, I mean, you've got to keep working on the criminal justice system. You've got to get cops to, like, process those rape kits more efficiently, which they're not doing in many states. There's a lot of rape kits that are sitting on shelves that have never been processed. And you've got to make, you know, cops just better at this, which is what feminists... Have been doing. My mother in the 1960s. That was one of the things she did as a feminist in Berkeley. She she pushed hard. She protested against the police force in the Bay Area, police forces in the Bay Area, to take rape seriously, which cops didn't do for forever until then. So do that's one thing. And the other thing is, (laughs) you'll like this. I mean, I I've been I say jujitsu, man. Seriously. I mean, like, (laughs) and the and ability to throw an elbow. I mean, Mm -hmm. and there's a group called Incite which is women of women of color against violence who have been doing this. They have they have martial arts classes, they have martial arts schools. They organize together and they kick the shit out of men who try to attack them. Um, now, that's not the ultimate answer. That's not going to that's not going to get rid of all rapists, but but it is a, 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 a but, at least partial solution believe you them. believe me if i had a daughter yeah i'd be telling her to do that yeah, yeah. i do have daughters i teach them. yeah 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 i, I mean 
it's it's one of those weird subjects too where if you discuss it you become a rape apologist you become I mean, you're not even allowed to deviate from the the ideology if you deviate from it in any way shape or form you it's it's yeah. you know it's yeah. a very strict dogma yeah. i mean you this is non-consensual because she can't consent because she's had a drink even yeah. if the guy has i've even seen it written that ladies like oh, a feminist wrote this blog saying women don't have sex with your man if he's drunk because he can't consent which is the most ridiculous shit ever <laughs> i mean right. it's just the, yeah. the whole idea being that sex is evil exactly and that's that's really what it comes down to you're not talking about people getting hurt if they decided to get drunk and wrestle yeah i mean is that assault right what is that if they yeah. both decide you know if a guy and a girl you know, take martial arts together, and the yeah. guy, you know, uh, and the girl are drinking, and the girl wants to wrestle. Is, it, is she not allowed to consent that yeah. she actually wants to wrestle because yeah. she's been drinking? Mm -hmm. It's only applied to sexuality. Yep. It's not applied to driving. If you're driving under the influence, you are absolutely, totally responsible. If you're smashed, no one says, hey, she couldn't consent to driving <laughs> right. because she was drunk. Yep. You're, you're responsible for your actions entirely, except sexually yep this comes back to what i started talking about which is the the cultural roots of our country which is puritanism so mm. right i mean if you look at puritans <laughs> people on plymouth rock you know that's one of the things they talked about ad nauseum that sex is the devil's work that it is this special thing that is it's evil and harmful and damaging and must be controlled more than anything else and that is run through our culture in various ways to the very present. And I would say that a lot of what's going on in this sexual assault discourse stuff that we're talking about, uh, you see it there too, that it's, that's what's going on, that there's this belief that, you know, if I had sex that I didn't really feel good about with my boyfriend or not, and we were really drunk and I woke up and I was like, uh, don't like this dude. And this was not okay. It's like, I think people are trained to think that they're damaged, mm -hmm. that this is a really terrible thing that happened to them. Right. Um, I don't know about that. I mean, it's a crazy thing. And it, this goes to prostitution. This is why prostitution is illegal, right? It's like we sell our bodies for money all the time. You know, that's well, what... Massage. Yeah. You know, you oh. You're selling your body, Fucking your MMA. Hands, you're is that intimate? People. You know, is that intimate? Right? I mean, well, like... Jiu-Jitsu is... different because well, it's competition. Well, but it's extremely intimate. But right? I mean, well, the, the good analogy is massage because massage feels good. No one sure. wants to do it to you. You pay them to do it sure. and that becomes an occupation. It's very respected. Yeah. You know, you talk yeah. to someone, I'm a massage therapist. Oh, that's cool. Sure, exactly. Yeah, but there's all sorts of professions where, you know, we sell our bodies intimately. Mm -hmm. You could even argue that's what we're doing now. I mean, you know, it's like, oh, my body's here, your body's there. We're using our minds. We're talking. This is the this is exploiting our bodies. We're not getting paid for a stretch. Oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> when I teach, when I teach, I, I say this. Okay. Yeah, right? I mean, so I'm like, I say to my students, look, I'm standing here. I brought my body here. You're looking at me. You're mm -hmm. judging me. It's like I'm using my body. To, you're right. getting paid for this. It's every job. You're selling your body. We draw a line at prostitution for some strange reason. But I don't think it's a strange reason. I think it's, it's puritanism. puritanism. Yeah, man. Yeah. I think it's because we believe deep down that sex is special. Yeah. In a, in a bad way. Do you know who Molly Crabapple is? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Very uh, interesting woman. Yeah, Very sex, sex worker activist and yeah. journalist. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, her, her, her take on it is, you know, completely open-minded. She's like, why? Why is it bad? You know, she's like, I have friends that are sex workers. Yep. She goes, sure. And it's fine. Like, what? Is, they like it. They mm -hmm. don't mind. They have clients that they enjoy being with. Right. And they get paid for that. Right. Like, like, isn't it better to do that than to do something you don't like? And isn't it a good thing to get sex? Right. 
Yeah, no, I have, I've worked with and I have friends who are in the sex worker activist uh, sort of movement right mm-hmm. now. And she's part of it. I don't know her, but she's a part of it. And, you know, the more common argument among them is it's not like we all love it. Right. What it is for them is it's a job. Right. It's a job. And right. some of us like it, like some of us like our jobs, and some of us are don't like it. Um, and But that's it. It's just a job for them. Mm-hmm. Like porn stars. Ask, ask a porn star. If you know anything about the porn industry, porn stars, that's how they think of it. When they go to work, it's not like, oh, hell yeah, we're going to party. It's just like, oh, okay. Right. Got to get up at nine o'clock and I go to the set and I'm going to be there for three hours and we're going to have lunch at noon and, mm-hmm. you know, and they come home, right? I mean, that's every every person in the porn industry I've ever known has said this about it's it. It's certainly right? what it becomes. Yeah. Once you do yeah. it for a while, it becomes yeah. a job. Right. Yeah. I I think you're, you're on to something. I definitely think you're on to something when it comes to the Puritan roots of this uh, idea that sex is evil and that kids you know away from their houses for the first time at 18 years of age having sex in a dorm room sure there's also the thing that happens too where the people that you communicate with after the fact can tell you what a horrible thing has happened to you Mm -hmm. and they do it with like this rabid intention Mm -hmm. and that was one of the parts of the story that i found quite fascinating like the the friends of the guy versus the friends of the girl like what their their take on it was yeah. you know and that the girl came over she was drunk the guy's friends saw her and they go yeah they were both fucked up i mean he had drank a half of a bottle of vodka and she drank countless beers or whatever but the girl's friends were like well it was definitely rape it was definitely sexually assault yeah well Se- yeah assault. it's even worse than that and now i'm really going to get fired okay um, <laughs> One of the things that happens, and it happened in this case, from what we can tell of the, from the evidence, is that um, so the average reporting time for sexual assault on campuses is is close to a year after the after the alleged assault. It's hundreds of days. It's it's close to it's something at two or three hundred days is the average time it takes people to report these things. And we have lots of testimony of those people, those women, saying saying that well, I didn't really th- I didn't know at first what it was. I didn't feel good about it, but I didn't know what it was, and then my professor started talking to me mm. and that's what happened in this case we we know pretty sure for we're sure pretty sure that a pr- particular professor there not only convinced her that it was rape but also did a demographic profiling of the guy and said well he belongs to these particular demographic groups who are likely to be rapists what yeah <laughs> what demographic groups are likely well, that, to be rapists that was one of the more amazing things he's a member of a team i forget i think it's either tennis or one of the, I don't know one of the teams that's supposedly more likely to be full of rapists oh than others. Oh my god. And that he's was a valedictorian. What? Yeah. So he's smart? So he's yeah. more likely to be a rapist? Because I guess they have a sense of entitlement is the idea. I don't know. Oh, I don't even know what the argument wow. is. But that was it was in the press. You can look it up. Oh my god. You that's can look it up. Crazy. Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, FIRE, awesome organization. Everyone should support it. They reported that. If you look at their website you can see, you can see that. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yes, it is. That you could be that boy who's become a valedictorian because you've struggled through high school and kicked ass and tried to get great grades and done your work and studied and under the supervision of your parents and tutors and what have you. And you're looking forward to having this great career. And someone has looked at that hard work and said, oh, he's most likely a rapist. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very damaging. Um, God, that's terrifying. And I've read I've read many many accounts. I've made many read many accounts of these things where it's like hard to call it rape. It's hard to call it rape. What do you got, Jamie? The the, the article. Oh, this is. It uh, also says because he was from a good family. Oh, there it is. <laughs> because he was from a good family. 
He's more likely in quotes. Oh my god. Oh my god. He was a valedictorian. He was on a sports team and was from a good family. So he's most likely a rapist. How does someone keep a job when they have that that ideology and they they promote it to kids? So this is a colleague of mine. So I, I'm I'm really kind of <laughs> constrained well, here. But yeah, it's, you know what, man? That's a criminal. That person's a terrible person. If anyone has said that to a young influential kid and mm. that pointed, this is what's more likely if a person's a rapist. Did they? use force did they drug you did they coerce you did something bad happen to you that makes a person a rapist yes not being from a fucking good family yes like what all non-rapists come from broken homes is that what you're saying yeah no i know all non-rapists got d's yeah i think the legal definition is pretty good you know it's the it's the use of force or the threat of the use of force is that all correct all those accusations that that professor said is that that professor ever come out and 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 confirmed these these statements her claims that 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 That, that men like that are more likely to be rapists hell of course not how could she Okay, so so this is just. I mean, that's it's absurd. Yeah, it's. I think I don't know what it comes from. Evidence? I can only guess where it comes from. I think that the men at Occidental who have been accused of sexual assault over the last few years, I think I'm guessing, belong to those categories. Now that's just accusations, though. But that's so crazy. So, and we're also, by the way, talking about I don't know, ten or twenty people. So. <sighs> that is so fucking crazy. Yeah, and it's but one of the and also you know. <laughs> One of the one of the most enraging things about it, and I, you know, I've talked to people who were actually victims of rape about this, right? And they are fucking furious. I'm sure because it 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 it, it uh, trivializes it, tri- it. It trivializes what happened to them, and and it and also makes it much harder to report rape. It makes it much more hard. It makes it much harder to take pe- for people to take seriously what happened to them. It's an ultimate cry wolf scenario. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, so you got to def- you got to be really disciplined about your definition of it of sexual assault and rape it's the use of force the threat of the use of force or having sex with with someone who is incapacitated and that is it and i think that's good enough yeah that is good enough and i i also think we should enforce like hell that absolutely you know and in all sorts of ways yeah right so but that's it yeah absolutely and i i also think that there's an issue with influencing people's ideas of the past influencing their memory i mean one of the worst pieces of evidence you would know this as good as anybody is eyewitness accounts they're Mm -hmm. terrible when you when you you ask people like i've talked to friends about scenarios that i was involved in where and they'll give you a, a take on it, and you mm-hmm. go, and I'll go. No, he didn't do that. Mike did that. Right, right. Don't right. you remember? And they'll go, Oh yeah, fuck yeah, dude. We were in Chicago. Mm-hmm. We had to go to that. We had to do that show. Remember? Oh yeah, fuck. Right. Like you were telling a crazy story about Vegas that didn't even happen in Vegas, and it wasn't even the guy you were talking about. <laughs> but you were so fucking sure, right. and it only happened six months ago. Right. I mean, yeah. that is sure. so common. And I'm, and I'm not trivializing traumatic incidences that really get etched into people's consciousness but there is a reality that eyewitness accounts are very difficult to corroborate because people their memories suck Mm -hmm. human memory and i've said this on this podcast many times my memory is dog shit but it's really good Mm -hmm. like for a person it's really good Mm -hmm. like i can pull things out of the past i'm I'm like my mma documentary uh my 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 mma uh memory rather it's Mm. fantastic i can recall fights from i've noticed decades ago like (laughs) off the top of my head i'm not using any notes i can just sure but if you you 
ask me to break down day by day what happened yesterday. Right. Fuck, it's a flashes. It's I, I see like snapshots. Mm-hmm. I barely remember what I ate. I barely remember where I went first. I mean, I, I'd have to concentrate and think about it. Right. Well, there's also subjectivity, right, and interpretation. Yes. So you and I could watch the exact same thing happened right in front of us right now and have a different interpretation of what happened. And having so. someone who's an influential person talk to you about those events oh, well, will shape your perception yeah. of them. So it's really egregious to convince yeah. someone that, that a terrible thing has happened to them when they're not sure that it's happened to them, right? Is there what What is the vested interest in making sure that this person decides a terrible thing has happened? I mean, is, is, is you're, are you dealing with people that don't like men? Are you dealing with people that don't like young boys? Are you dealing with people that don't like masculine sex Sexuality and they're trying to suppress it in any form possible. Yeah. So to to mute or neuter men in this way, I, to make it so they're terrified to have sex with someone yeah. unless they have like written consent during various stages of the sexual act. I would like to record on record that we're about to have sex and you are sober. Are you sober? Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Okay, let's proceed. Yeah, I, I really... I'm really hesitant about going for motivations in these things when it's about politics because right. people do that to me all the time. Right. Oh, you made that argument because you're a racist. Oh, you made that argument mm-hmm. because you're a man. Oh, you ha- made that argument because your mom wasn't good to you, whatever. Um, Check your privilege status. Yeah. Oh, boy. It happens <laughs> all the time. Um, so, I, um, however. <laughs> it's been shown that men named Thaddeus have a lot of privilege, too, by the way. Sure, man. It means great leader, dude. Uh, <laughs> uh, um. Well, there is this there is this sort of phenomenon that some of us have identified, which we call the white savior complex. Um, which you remember, Coney twenty twelve. Yes. Okay. Oh, so, good lord. So that's like the greatest example of that. Boy, did that fucking vanish quick. Yeah. Well, for good reason. But that's kind of like the greatest example of that. Uh, <laughs> really, a really awesome writer named Teju Cole. I'm not sure how it's, he pronounces his name that way, but it's T E J U Cole, an amazing writer. He's actually a fiction writer, but he he he's, he talked about the Coney Twenty Twelve and the White Savior Complex, which you know, and this is a lot of my work is on this. It's um, it's mostly white people, almost all elite people. It is almost entirely Western European and American people who take it upon themselves to save save their social inferiors, right? And they want to go out and find them, first of all, find their find these poor, sad people in the world, wherever they may be, whether it's in the ghetto in Compton or whether it's in Rwanda or wherever, and, and go save them and change their lives and uplift them and make them more like us. Um, it's, it's sort of the, it is the psychological and cultural core of imperialism. And to me, it has led to the deaths of millions of people. So, you know, what did Coney 12 result in? It literally resulted in, I think, 500 U.S. servicemen being on the ground shooting people. <laughs> now, you could say that was necessary to save those kids from that guy. Uh, and just so, so just so happens, historically, it almost never ends at that, right? It almost always ends in something else. A bigger war, bigger shooting war erupts because of this. And now we need to conquer the whole country, as in Iraq, right? That was a humanitarian mission, remember? Right. That was to save the Iraqis. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Not exactly. Yeah. So how many Iraqis have died to, to save them? Something like a million, right? Yeah, it's, it's debatable, but a hell of a lot. It's at least 200,000. Two, it two, could be as many as but a so, But think about it. It's to killing them to save them, right? <laughs> Which was what was said about Vietnam. So that was the kind of this classic line by a general in Vietnam. He said, we have to, we have to uh, destroy the village in order to save it, right? But anyway, so that's that idea. It's also this very arrogant paternalistic 
impulse that a lot of people have, in particular, a lot of white people, <laughs> but certainly elite people. Fucking white people. I know I hate white people. I'm glad Fuck you're with me on this. And I want to talk about Ludacris with you, by the way. We got to talk about Ludacris. But, okay. Yeah. But um, you're bit on Ludacris. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're like, what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> okay. White people. Um, <laughs> no, it's true. Um, so, okay. Yeah. So the, you think that, so the same sort of motivation that people have to, to do this 2012 Coney thing is the same motivation yep. that they have to cry rape? Well, to encourage people. To, to, so because you need to have a victim, you need to have someone who's suffering, you need to have someone who's oppressed, right, to save them. Right. right? So you got you to make sure they exist. And so you have to create that discourse, that way of thinking about them. And because this young man uh, had a lot going for him from a good family and a valedictorian. You also have to have an oppressor. He's an oppressor. To, to vanquish. Right. right? He's so, obviously privileged. Yeah, so Coney was the oppressor who had mm -hmm. to be vanquished to save the kids there. Right. Uh, yeah, I think it's this. I think. I, can't, I don't want to speak for her. I don't want to speak for what's going on in her mind. But I do think it does line up with Coney 2012. Uh, that there's, you have to create an oppressor, you have to create a victim in order to save them so that you become the, the knight, the white knight. Well, how do they justify the, the boy being responsible but the girl not being responsible? <laughs> yeah, so that's to me fundamentally anti-feminist yes. and conservative as hell, right? Because it, is, it says that a man can make decisions, can have agency when he's drunk, but a woman cannot. She's a victim. She's going to be a victim. So women can't control themselves. They can't determine their own lives when they're drunk. But men can, right? That's that's like that's like what fucking Don, incredibly sucks. That's like what Don Draper says in, yeah. on Mad Men about women, yeah. right? It's like, oh well, you know, they're just they're dumb and they can't control themselves when they've had a couple drinks. Uh, excuse me, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I think there's there's also you said that just like a chick, by the way. Did excuse I? me, I don't think so. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. I, saved, I just saved my job then. Um. <laughs> well, if you get fired for what you said, the world is really fucked. The uh, world, I mean, the academic world Well, that's is not exactly fucked. why I got fired, but I mean, that's a, we I can, know we can get into that. Yeah, which has to do with Ludacris. Seriously. Really? Yeah. I mean, not... Yeah, basically. Basically. Okay. The, the, your bit about Ludacris is, is actually... Is, is very, very similar to a big argument I made, which is the reason I got fired. And what, what was the argument you Okay, made? so this is about race. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. And and in your bit, actually, I don't think you do. I don't think you did. You connect it to race? Did you say no. it's like yeah, you didn't, right? So that's no. the difference. Yeah, it was just about people enjoying themselves. Yeah, and that there's there's a lot of music that's just so fucking depressing, right? And it's just like like uh, like that Hey There Delilah yeah. song, yeah, 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 which was not even apparently about a girl that this guy dated, which is even creepier. Oh, really? Yeah, it's what like it a about? girl that he knew. So this girl's uh, probably like moving yeah. to New York to get the fuck away from this guy. Right. He's writing this song. Hey there, did I? Well, yeah, I thought it wasn't. A, I mean, you didn't say this, but I thought it's not a coincidence that a lot of white rock like that is very depressing. Very emo. But, yeah, but yeah. it's depressing. You were saying yes. it's depressing and like yes. a downer. Even thing. What we are, what we're attracted to is like the melancholy of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, well, and there's then depth, there's depth in being somber. Or we, or, or we, yeah, we, we think there's depth. Yeah. In it. Yeah. Whatever we think, we value that. We think, oh, well, he must be a deep person, right. you know, a deep thinker with real feelings. He's a poet. He's a human being. He's a He's fully a realized human being, a poet. Yes. Right? He understands. Complex He emotions. understands the essence of human, humanity. Yeah. Well, He's yeah. not having fun and smiling because people are starving. Yeah, exactly. Oh my God. Exactly. There, there are more important things to do than have fun. Yeah. 
but that's not so true. that's exactly what you're yeah. getting at. yeah so like so I, so the fact that you compare to him and what was it what do they call those dirty white single white tea, what do they call the white tees? white tees like something. Something. Yeah. yeah they're they're white dudes right and then and with ludicrous right and his celebration of rims yeah and barbecues and asses right um <laughs> i mean this is, this is my work this is right. this is like the core of my work believe it or not <laughs> perfect so um yeah when i saw it god's work i was watching it with my 12 year old son you're special (laughs) and i was (laughs) was like toby do you see that he just said what he he was like yeah i think i get it (laughs) (laughs) i like ludicrous a little bit um (laughs) is that okay dad no it's um yeah it's so much of american culture from the beginning has been defined in that way so like you know white people have sort of prided themselves on being, you know, very serious and upright and disciplined and controlled and uh, and therefore they should be the president, right? Or the CEO right. or, you know, the professor, right? Um, and th- they are the good Puritans, right? They invented the shit and they adhered to it more than others. Not perfectly, of course, but they adhered to it more than others. And they always took that as a source of pride, right? Yeah, man, we're so repressed, yeah, we don't we don't run around naked and fucking in the bushes and you know, we don't we work hard. You know, we believe that work is a good thing and as opposed to those other people, right? Those other mm. people we brought here from Africa who didn't have those ideas, right? Who they're always just naked who in the streets. Dance. They dance and they they don't think that work in itself is godly. That's the Protestant work ethic, by the way. It's not not work as a means to an end, which makes sense to all of us. You got to get shit, you gotta work hard. The Protestant or Puritan work ethic is, and this is what they said, work in itself is good, no matter what you get for it. You don't get, if you don't get paid at all, if you don't make anything out of it, it's still you should work, right? That's what they've always said, right? So you get valorized for just working hard, even if you get nothing for it. So that's been kind of this, the kind of, to me and a lot of historians, it's been kind of like the central cultural split in our, in our, in our country for 400, 500 years. Um, between those two and you kind of nailed it in that bit and i was kind of stunned i was like oh my god he sort of gets it. although you didn't you didn't connect it to race um but the roots of it and this is in my book this is what i do with it you know i, I try to find the roots of it i'm like how did this happen that black people created jazz and mm-hmm. rock and roll is that just a coincidence and a lot of stand-up comedy too and comedy right so richard well, yeah not really like lenny bruce is the real godfather of comedy he's the the and he's a jew he was the real god, but yeah. he was doing heroin with black jazz singers. Exactly. I mean, he was he's hanging around exactly. with a lot of beat poets, and they exactly. were hanging around with a lot of jazz singers. They were smoking marijuana with yeah. you know a lot of black guys. It was yeah. There was a cultural infusion there. There was a lot going yeah. on, and which was one of the reasons why a lot of his subjects, one of his more prominent subjects, had to do with race. Race, right? Yeah. Uh, Chitlin Circuit preceded him. Mom's ba- Mabley preceded him. Red Fox, I think, was the same time, and I think before him as well. So, yeah, I agree with you. But Pryor but, was the godfather, but, so Pryor, and he came out of Lenny Bruce. Yeah, yeah. Ab- uh, you think so? Yeah, yeah. He very, very strongly influenced by him and discussed hmm. it in great, Did he really? great length. Really? Pryor yeah, said that? Yeah, he had seen Lenny Bruce several times hmm. in the village, and there was a... Lenny Bruce was the original. This is pretty. Hmm. It, it, pretty much everybody agrees with that when it comes to stand-up comedy. And that Pryor was influenced by him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, everybody was. Well, okay, that's fine. I still have an argument for that. <laughs> Which Jews, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. Jews, absolutely. Jews and blacks have dominated stand-up forever, right? Mm-hmm. You know, um, um, why, right? So here's so here's why blacks have, and it, you know, so it's. It's not just comedy, and it's a particular kind of comedy, right? It's like it's you know it's it's loose very, fun, loose body, right? Yeah. 
um, you know, saying things you're not supposed to say in right. polite company, you know, talking about fucking in the mm-hmm. 1950s and 60s when you definitely weren't supposed to do it then. Right. So, taking drugs, you know, and like making light of that. That was mm-hmm. not okay. Right. Lenny, Lenny was the martyr for that, right? He went to jail for that shit, right? So, but he didn't really talk about it on stage. Pryor really talked well, prior about it Well, Pryor then just blew it up. Yeah. Yeah. Pryor's is my major influence. <laughs> people, when people ask me, like, at academic conferences, like, so who's your major influence? And I'm like, well, Michelle Foucault <laughs> and Richard Pryor. And they're like, what? <laughs> it's true, though. It's absolutely true. When I saw Live in Concert, when yeah. I was 13, 12 or 12 years old, I, first of all, fell out of my chair in the theater, and I was like, that changed my life. Me too. Because he, one of the, th- one of the many things he did was, I think he was the first person to do this, in, first black person to do this in public on a stage. He made fun of white people and suggested that they were actually inferior like yeah. that had not happened before, like imitating them and putting them down and sort of suggesting, not suggesting, basically saying, yeah, man, yeah. like they're lame. They're, they're, they suck. Yeah, yeah. He has this great bit. It's not in live in concert. It's, at a, it's in a smaller piece. Um, he's like, he says something like, uh, man, white people, white people are doing, white people be doing yoga. Niggas be fucking. Right. <laughs> and it's like, that sums it up. Right. <laughs> and so, um, but so slavery. Okay. All right. Can we do slavery? Sure. Okay. Now I'm going to get fired like four times. You can only fire you once. And you're going to get in trouble too. How can I be in trouble? Well, if you agree with me. Okay. I'm going to agree with you already. How about that? Cool. All right. So here it is. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you got to understand like Puritanism and American culture uh, from Plymouth Rock all the way through the 19th century first. Okay. Which was unbelievably repressive. Okay. And this is, everyone agrees on this, right? It was like comically repressive. Right. Uh, this first Surgeon General of the United States, Benjamin Rush, wrote these books about how masturbation caused blindness and death and epilepsy. <laughs> there were just like j- medical journals were full of this shit about how sex was terrible and would kill you and cause paralysis and all this stuff. The, mm. One of the fastest growing industries in the early 19th century, right after the United States is founded, was for devices to stop people from masturbating. So like chainmail mitts for men and these hobbles that kept women's legs together Whoa. that had a lock and key and then chastity belts everybody knows about that all these devices it was just this amazingly like comically repressive culture around sex and then also around work so the puritan work ethic that work is good no matter what you get for it and you're you're doing the devil's work if you're not working um was in like five-year-old children's textbooks kindergartners were taught that playing with their toys was the devil's work and they were taught to be useful in their lives and to to find a profession and a vocation when they're in kindergarten right and it just suffused the whole society so like every political leader every business leader and certainly all the religious leaders everybody and novels that were written poetry is just all about work all the time to be godly and never have sex even in marriage, there was even a lot of talk through the 19th century about even even having sex with your wife was dangerous at best. Like you did it, you did it because you had to to procreate to make more Americans. But that was it. Like you got to be really careful. You can't let it get out of hand beyond wow. that. You got to just yeah. So this is and historians all agree on this. It was just a phenomenal. So this is Victorianism, right? This is mm-hmm. like when Puritanism moves into Victorianism, right? What was the cause of all that? What what? That's what? an awesome question. I, I, no one can answer. I mean, what is the what is the cause of a culture emerging? I don't know. I mean, one thing. One of the more common. One of the most common explanations is industrial capitalism, right? So this is, this is also the time of the first factories, you know, and this is the time when people are moving from the farms 
into cities and, and working in sort of industrial capitalist formats, right, where they're sitting at a table and there's a division of labor and you put together the, the machinery or the shoe piece by piece and da, da, da. So that required, or, you know, that requires a lot of discipline, right? It requires getting people to stop drinking and stop fornicating and to, you know, be mm. committed to work is a good thing. Right. Um, I'm not sure that's, I mean, that's a decent explanation. I'm not sure if that really explains it entirely. Um, first of all, because it kind of pre-exists it. You know, the Puritans were way before all that happened. Um, and they were talking about that for centuries before there was industrial capitalism. But it was this crazy repressive culture that Americans lived in. It's it's funny for us to look at now the things that they were saying at the time and doing at the time. But it was just can you? It's hard to imagine living like that. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was kind of, and that was also considered to be what white people do. You know, that's all, it was it was totally racialized, right? So it's like white good Americans, white meaning white people do that. They don't fuck and they work. <laughs> They put Pretty simple. Skirts and, over their piano legs. Yeah, and also, I mean, and that kind of extended to dancing. So there's, I have a, whole, I have a whole section in my book on dancing, and so like it was terrible to dance, to dance in American culture. If, if you're a white person, um, leisure was bad. It was all bad. So that's how, that's where everyone lived. And then along come these people from this other place called West Africa, where none of these ideas existed. Like. The Protestant work ethic was like, what are you talking about? It just it, That's a purely Northern European and American invention. You know, very few people in world history have subscribed to that idea. So the West Africans come over here. They also believed in moving your body as a good thing. You know, it was a beautiful thing to them, moving it in sensual ways, dancing and otherwise. They didn't believe that sex outside of marriage was wicked. It was going to destroy your life, especially for women. They thought that women who had sex outside of marriage were fine, that it was no problem. Uh, they come over here, and then, as slaves, they have zero, of course, incentive to internalize, to adopt this white person's culture, right? Um, not only that, they're sort of physically barred from it, right? So they're, so citizenship, they're not given citizenship, right? And that's not good, because you don't get to vote, and you don't get equal protection under the law, and all those good things that come with citizenship. What people miss about it is that in this cult, in, here and everywhere, citizenship is also a cultural thing. Right? You're considered a good American if you do particular things. Right? And in that case, it meant putting your body in a walking prison. Right? That's what a good citizen did, a good white person. So slaves were here. They brought elements of this West African culture that thought that sex was okay and that work was a means to an end and that was it. <laughs> uh, and they had no incentive to adopt this insane repressive culture that the white people were all about. And so they developed their own, which wasn't West African and it wasn't American. It was this new thing called Africa, which we now call African-American culture. And that is what gave us jazz, man. You know, because what is jazz? Jazz is the music of improvisation. It's the music. It's been called the music of freedom. You take this musical structure and then the soloist does what he wants for a moment. He goes out of the structure and, and is free. He's liberated from the structure and then comes back into it. It's the music of improvisation and freedom. I don't think it's a coincidence that people who were separated from that ridiculously repressive culture created that music. White people never could have created that, ever. That is absolutely fascinating. So, How much has influenced our culture that has come out of the people that were brought over here as slaves? Oh, it's it, that's just the beginning. That's the most obvious one that everyone knows about. Um, people make fun of Ebonics, right? Remember that? When Ebonics mm -hmm. was happening, like it's like 15, 20 years ago, it was like this big joke. Oh my God! It's the well, they were actually teaching it. Well, yeah, actually, a friend of mine is uh, wrote the book on it, and 
Um, well, so think about how often in a day that you use what used to be called black slang, right? We all do all the time. Even professor, even like fucking Bob Costas uses it now. Like Bob Costas does? Yeah, what did, I hear, what did he say? He said something like... Um, what did he say? It wasn't something like dope, but it was something like... <laughs> I forget. It was, it was some black slang I heard. I was like, God, see, if, you, if Bob Costas is, is saying this, then... But no, it's um, they're cool. We've done no, not not. It was better than that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, cool is one. Bad, bad yeah. is another one. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, but no, we've there's quantitative studies on this. So the number of words that come from black vernacular is immense in American English. Immense. I'm sure. And so much of it is now perfectly respectable, right? Um, all of that when it, but when those words were invented, fuck, that was like stupid niggers say that right i mean right. Like, you know and now it's like ah oh, that's, that's great um yeah so from the beginning i called them america's original renegades from the beginning black working class culture has been the main not the only but the main counterpoint to this puritanism that's been with us ever since that's absolutely fascinating it's a, a very interesting scenario to picture what america would have been like had there been no slaves had the African-American exactly. culture not sort of... You know what it would be? Sweden. <laughs> pretty, I mean, safe, some, pretty safe. In I mean, something like that. Yeah, like Switzerland. Yeah, something like that. Some very homogenous, very, very uh, restrained, you know. I mean, hey, the streets are clean, though. Right. You know, but so it's order over spontaneity. You know, right. It's um, and it it it, so, it totally changes what America is. Oh yeah. Because America, we like to think of is the hub of innovation, the hub of artistic expression yeah. and creativity yeah, and, yeah. and entertainment. Ninety mm -hmm. percent oh. of the great entertainment that the world has ever created comes from right here. Take black people out of American entertainment. My God, what My are you God. left with? What are you left with? Whew. Yeah, where the fuck would, where would, rock, I mean, think about Led Zeppelin. I mean, it's been shown sure. now that Led Zeppelin pretty much plagiarized a giant chunk of all of their music from old blues, blues. songs. Yep, yeah. The Stones are the coolest about that because they were like, from the beginning, they were like, nope, we're playing black music. That's what mm -hmm. we're doing. We're playing the blues. That's who our influences are. That's what we're about. Yeah, um, Wild Horses. I mean, come all on. All of it, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I was just watching Keith Richards on, on uh, Fallon, and he was saying this. He was talking about, uh, oh, Chuck Berry. He was like, yeah. I'm nothing without Chuck Berry. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, the Beatles and Chuck Berry had a close relationship, too. That, Absolutely. I mean, there's so many of those early guys. Little Richard, another oh. beautiful example. Sure. There's so many of those early performers that directly influence the course of rock and roll. Absolutely. It's a black music. Wow, that yeah. is a fascinating point. So if you look at, so here's the lineage, right? I mean, you know this, but just a <laughs> quick primer review. I mean, it's, so it's, it's slave music, right? Which has been called various things. There were spirituals, but there was also dance music that they invented. Uh, then there's ragtime, late 19th century, which everyone agrees gave, gives birth to jazz and blues. And then after World War II, it's, it's uh, rock and roll. And then rhythm and blues, what was called rhythm and blues. And then soul in the 1960s which gave birth to disco in the 1970s, which gave birth to hip-hop. So, and all of that goes straight back to the slaves on the plantations. Wow. And this culture that I was talking about that was outside of this crazy, repressive white culture. So it's this... Fucking white people. Yeah, so it's this crazy... Damn I know, it. We got to get rid of them, man. That's what I'm saying. Malcolm X had a point. Everybody's got a point. Nah, I don't want to get rid of white people. I want to get rid of whiteness. Yeah. Seriously. We yeah. need spray tans. That's what you're saying. No, no. No. <laughs>
It looks ugly. It's orange. Um, <laughs> yeah, orange is not good. Yeah. Colored, they don't mean orange. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Not on this planet. Not all colors. Not on this planet. Not blue either. So, oh, but Jews, man. Lenny Bruce, right? right? So I have four sections in the book on this. Uh, so on immigrant groups. And I look at, I look at uh, Irish immigrants, Italian immigrants, and Jewish immigrants. And one of the things that blows people away, they don't know this. Most people don't know this. When all three of those groups first got here, so the Irish was early 19th century, Italians and Jews was late 19th, early 20th century. When they came here in large numbers for the first time, they were not considered white. So people who looked just like me, white as hell, were, con- and, and not only just not white, they were considered, the Irish were considered to be Negroes. <laughs> they were considered to be black. Um, because, really? Yeah, because they came with this culture that was nowhere near white Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture that we've been talking about. So the Irish were known as the greatest dancers on earth, even better than blacks. They invented tap dancing with blacks in New York City. Um, they could give a fuck about working, except how much it you know got them in terms of wages. They believed in drinking uh, beginning at 8 a.m. and continuing all the way through the day during work. Um, <laughs> they lived, when they got here, they lived with and around blacks because they were poor. So in the city, in New York and Philadelphia, Boston, they lived in black neighborhoods. And often you see a lot of cohabitation and you see a lot of what's called miscegenation, blacks and whites having sex together, procreating. Oh, shit. A lot of, yeah. Oh, so they were, called, they were called white niggers. It was wow. very common and a lot of discrimination against them because of that. And also there's very little evidence of racism among Irish Americans during that period, which is weird now because if you think about it, I mean, Irish Americans for the last hundred or so years have kind of been, unfortunately, the leaders in many ways of, of white American racism. But, but then there's very little evidence of it. And then what happened was they were like, wait, we'd like to get the vote. I mean, they were getting the vote, but not in mass. We'd like to get political power. We'd like to be treated. We'd like to get good jobs be treated like these white Americans. So there was this very deliberate conscious effort by Irish American immigrant group leaders and church leaders to do several things. One of them was to distance themselves from blacks. So they moved out of the neighborhoods to enter the army and serve in the Mexican-American War and the Civil War to prove that they were good white American civilians and soldiers. Um, They entered politics. They became Democratic Party politicians, again, proving that they were committed to the country. And most of all, everyone knows this, they became cops. So Mm. Irish Americans moved into the police forces in huge numbers, especially in New York and Philadelphia during this period, and and fire departments. And they became racists. So there were these big (laughs) anti-black... There were these big anti-black uh, riots called the New York City Draft Riots in 1863, which was just this huge pogrom lynching, mass lynching of blacks in the streets of New York City. And that was mostly Irish people doing that. Um, and what, what year was that going 1863, on? during the Civil War. Yeah, so it was... Mass lynchings of black people yeah, in New York City? Yeah, the New York City Draft Riots. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was ugly. Um, it was in part resentment against rich people who were paying off others to go to war for them. You could do that. You could sell your draft. You could sell your selection into the army. Really? Or you could buy it, I mean. Um, so, you, yeah, you could pay someone to go to war in, in your place, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so it was resentment against that, but it actually sort of very quickly turned toward blacks because it, it was a good, wide belief that the war was for on behalf of blacks, right, to free them. Mm-hmm. So the Irish were kind of pissed off at the rich people who were, you know, uh, not going to war when they should have been. And it was, but then it very quickly turned to an anti-black mass lynching because they were blaming these guys for this war that a lot of these Irish guys were volunteering to go fight in. Um, 
So, but anyway, so they, so if you look at social scientists in the early 19th century when the Irish are coming in big numbers, they're like, they're Negroid, they're really from Africa, or they're chimpanzees. There was a lot of theory among social scientists and so-called scientists that the Irish were actually apes. <laughs> Seriously. Like what? books, yeah, yeah, books were written. Many, many books. It was common, commonly believed by, by the British and by Americans that the Irish were actually apes or the missing link between apes and human beings. Yeah, and they what? were actually, yes, it was commonly believed that they were actually, get this, below African-Americans, that they were actually genetically inferior to everybody. That yeah. the Irish were the bottom of the, the barrel. The very bottom. They weren't even human beings to many what people. What about Native Americans? Yeah, I guess they were down there too. But yeah, the Irish, but yeah. I suppose they were sort of similar to the, to the natives. I mean, they weren't compared too often to them, but um, chimpanzees. Yeah, so that's it's in my book. Yeah, so they called wow. they, they were called the Irish chimpanzees. Yeah, uh, wow. By, and I'm talking about like Harvard professors. What? Oh yeah, no. And this was this was respectable academic discourse. This was like what respectable, you know. What pe- years? We this is all. The, this is the first half of the 19th century. This that is, is insane. This is when the Irish are coming here in big numbers, right? So they. So the early yeah. 1800s. Yeah, and it was part Harvard professors were referring to Irish oh, people yeah. as apes. Yep. That's fascinating. Well, obviously everyone is humans and ape, but well, yeah, no, but, but still yeah. they still are apes, is what yeah. they're saying. So wow. then, so but then they go through this. Re- they go through this really aggressive process of what's called assimilation right they became they tried to assimilate into the dominant white culture um and here's this amazing thing so by the end of the 19th century just as less like less than a hundred years they're all the social scientists they're doing all these taxonomies of the world's races right and they're ranking them and they, really I, yeah oh yeah this is this is what my people professors were doing then man it was hilarious wow. And so they would rank all these races, and including in Europe, they had races in Europe. They divided Europe into three races. There were the Northern Europeans, who were the best ones, and the Middle Europeans, who were okay. And then there were the Southern Europeans, who sucked and who should be, you know, ditch diggers. The Irish were below all of that. Where'd the European Jews fit in? Bottom. Absolutely. Bottom. Oh, yeah. Totally bottom. Yeah. They but were also they're like some of the, uh, like the vast majority of Nobel Prize winners. I know. Check it out. Okay. So Jews. Well, let me finish the Irish okay, thing. Yeah. Just, and I'll get to the Jews because it's totally linked. Within less than 100 years, these social scientists and all these professors, et cetera, and political leaders um, moved the Irish from chimp to Nordic, which was the top of the chain. That was the Northern European it was called the white man par excellence. What? So they, because they were cops and firefighters and politicians and generals, and they hated blacks, and they were living out, apart from blacks, and they gave up dancing. I mean, I'm serious. They gave up dancing. I'm serious. If you look at if you look at priests, Irish priests through the 19th century, that's one of the things they were very concerned about was that Irish were dancing too much. <laughs> they invented tap dance. They invented tap dance, well, which that is river dancing shit. Well, yeah, that's that different. No, nah, no, that's Irish, Irish. That's Irish, Irish. Uh, I'm different. talking about Irish Americans. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. No, they invented tap the tap dance, which is so much, which is like the base of so much of vernacular dance now. Mm. The Jews. Um, there was a prominent social scientist named Arthur Abernathy who wrote a book which was very typical of the time in 1906, I believe. The title of which was "The Jew is a Negro." So the same thing was done with the Jews. When they got here, and they got here a little later than the Irish, in in large numbers, sort of late 19th century. Um, Same thing. They were known for their musical ability, right? Jews became very famous in jazz, right? They they sort of co-founded jazz in many ways. A lot of them are gangsters. That's not okay. 
right? Meyerland. It's very, it's very yeah, Meyer, yeah, oh yeah. The Jewish mob was as big, almost as big as the Italian mob when they got here. Um, and, you know, they were very considered to be very sensual of the body, you know, animalistic. And check this out. This is people, when I tell my students this, they do not believe me, but it's many historians have written about this. Jews dominated, dominated two sports in the first half of the 20th century. Boxing. Boxing, you know this, and basketball. Basketball. Ba they totally dominated basketball. Boxing, the number of world champions, many weight classes were Jews. Yeah. But many of dozens of them were top. And, and, then, and then basketball, they totally dominated basketball until the 1950s. It, that seems to be the boxing thing, though. In, in fighting, it seems to be an economic position thing. That when people come over and they're immigrants and they're at the bottom of the yeah. economic food chain, like right now we're, you're seeing an influx of Russian champions. Right. Yeah. Right. A lot of Russians. Right. A lot of so um, former Soviet Union. I think it's actually cultural. Mm. Do I think because not every immigrant group does that, right? So not Italians, Irish. So when they get yeah. So but I think it's 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 when. It, so here, well, let me. So here's the thing that was. Here's the funniest thing about Jews and Italians, by the way, were the same category as Jews in many ways. They dominated a lot of those sports too. What was said about Jews and sports, in particular boxing and and basketball, was that they were naturally gifted athletes. Jews. Yeah. So the way that the way that people talked about Jews and athleticism then is exactly the way that people talk about blacks and athleticism now. Wow, that's it's interesting. It's hilarious to watch to look at sports writers in the 1920s, 30s and 40s talk about Jewish basketball players and how they're naturally gifted and they can jump higher and they're faster and they're trickier the and butts all this. are higher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Remember that? Uh yeah. Jimmy the Greek. Yeah, 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 right, right. Fired for yep, saying exactly. black people had higher butts. That's because they were trained on the plantation <laughs> or something to I don't know. Well, uh, he he was it, genetic it, it was about genetic selection, genetic selection. Like getting the biggest <clears throat> slaves to mate with the yeah. Is that true? Is that factual? I mean, that's a commonly no, well, stated no, thing. No, no. Most, histori most historians reject that. Really? There may have been a tiny bit, but no. Um, the, I would think that that's something you would want to do if you well, had several generations of slaves. However. You want to get the big ones to breed with the big ones. Well, so this isn't my book, too, but, uh, but many historians have said, well, if – so – to if you're if you're going to be selectively breeding people, meaning forcing them to have sex with people when they don't want to or whatever, right? Um, they're not going to work very well for you. <laughs> you know, they're not going to. And so it's a very tricky thing being a slave master, right? Because there's no incentive whatsoever to work. The only thing, the only incentive to work as a slave is to avoid the lash, to avoid the whip. So what slaves did typically was they worked just enough to not get whipped, right? And not one bit more. So if you're doing other things to make them want to work even less, they will, right? And there's not much you can do about it, right? Because you can't whip a slave to death. If you whip a slave to death, then you have zero labor, right? So there's, masters are always trying to strike this delicate balance between uh, about getting the maximum output from slaves who had hmm. zero incentive to work. With, with wages, with a wage economy, right? We all have incentive. We work like shit, you know, just to get the money, right? But there wasn't, there wasn't that under slavery. So slave masters actually oddly had this disadvantage in a way. Um, but anyway, so no, most, most historians have not found much evidence of genetic manipulation like that. So genetic breeding. Why do, why are <coughs> African Americans so much larger physically? Is it a diet issue uh, than African Africans? I mean, like the type of, 
pro athletes that you see today, like football players, mm-hmm. just three hundred and twenty pound college f- seniors. I'm not. Is that really true, though? Oh I'm yeah. Not, well, no, no. no I mean, no, no, no. I know that, but I mean, if you in look comparison at comparison to if Africa, you, if you look at all of all people of African descent in the world now and took an average height and weight of them, I don't know how how would it compare to people of European descent. I we should know. probably do a study before we start. talking I mean, if about you looked it. at the Nebraska offensive line, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. plenty of, especially in America, right? Some giant white people too giant white people out there yeah there's but there's like a certain athleticism that's associated with the giant black people that's not associated with the giant white people who are more lumbering and right. they're never running backs they're never so yeah so you know malcolm gladwell the writer he's mm-hmm. a new yorker yeah so he's argued this and he's a black canadian and he's actually said <laughs> in the new yorker which was amazing and he got in a lot of trouble for it he's like no yeah actually we are genetically better at at, at, at sports that's why we're, that's why we're faster for it oh because that's connected to sort of old-fashioned scientific racism the jimmy the greek variety right but how when you look at all the african-american basketball players that are elite Mm -hmm. all the african-american football players that are elite Mm -hmm. all the african-american fighters boxers that are elite Mm -hmm. how much data do you need to say i mean well but again it's all cultural well yeah i mean because you could be six five two eighty and ripped and still suck at basketball right Mm, and so it's can but the guys that are really good at it all seem to be african-american and they can do things like show me a white guy that moves like michael jordan and i'll sit down uh, there have been some. <laughs> there have been some. No, show me a white Carl Malone. Oh, definitely have been Carl Malones. White Carl really? Malone? Oh, sure. There's okay, no big power. There's no LeBron. There's no. LeBron. LeBron. There's no, there's no, one. There's no any other LeBron. But no, um, no it's still, there's never been a white Anderson Silva. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, no. There's why I just there's there's certain levels. I mean, George St. Pierre was an, an amazing fighter, but he was amazing more for his his intelligence very athletic for sure but not ridiculously fast very physically strong but yeah he was really good at being unpredictable he was really good at the way he would mix up his techniques right well then okay so then how do you explain that jews and italians dominated all those sports i don't know not long ago well that could be access could so. be access to they didn't because Jack Johnson was the great heavyweight champion. I mean, Jack Johnson was the motherfucker that everybody was scared. I of. I know, but there were more. There were more at the the lower weight classes. There were more Jewish champions than blacks mm-hmm. in the first half. But of there the were littler century. people. Yeah, well, but I mean, I'm saying, but they right. were they but were considered to, to be, and they were awesome, so supposedly naturally gifted athletes. Well, I mean, there's still there were some great black <clears throat> fighters as well. Sandy Sadler. There was, oh, sure. there was quite a few great black. I mean, oh, Neil sure. Griffith. There was a lot of great black fighters too. Sure. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much of it is access. How much of it is, you know, access to good trainers. Yeah. So, like the at one point, I think it was in the 1940s, the um, something like six or seven out of the top ten scorers in the the professional basketball league at the time were Jewish. <laughs> Wow. I know. And now I think the NBA has not one. Not one. Dolph, uh, Danny Shays, I think, was the last Jew that I was aware of who played in the NBA. He played about like six or seven years ago. In boxing, too. I mean, yeah, there's no try Jews. to find a Jew. Yeah, no. I think there's like one guy. I saw one guy like about 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always on the lookout. <laughs> I, I grew up with one. Dana Rosenblatt. He was a New England champion. Huh. Really? D- dangerous Dana Rosenblatt. Huh. Yeah. Tough fighter. How about kid? in the UFC, are there any Jews? I don't think so. Um, there's probably a few. I've never noticed. Yeah, you'd have to. Uh, I don't know. 
I don't know. It's a good question. I'd have to go uh, go through the archives. But as far as champions, no, no, definitely no, not. no right. champions. Right, right. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, so yeah, I mean, well, so Russians. So you're talking about Russians. Mm-hmm. So like, are they? You think Russians are naturally genetically superior? Well, in athletics. I mean, some of them. That's why they're so good. Have you ever seen Provodnikov? Yep. That guy looks like Max Kellerman did the best description of him. He said they thawed out a caveman, put well, some boxing gloves thi- on him. But Provodnikov <laughs> is sort of my – he actually – I think he serves my argument better because he's not that talented. I mean, it's his ta- he's not like – he's talented, but he's not – his the, way, the reason he's so successful is that he's been – he can get punched in the head 500 times he's and, got and keep going. power. His too. chin is – but his chin is endless. His chin is very good, but he also has brutal power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he's, you don't look at him and say, wow, what a naturally gifted boxer, right? Compared to... Not like a... F- well, Floyd, Floyd or whoever is yeah. very, or, very skillful. Yeah. He's, he's a craftsman. Yeah. He's a real professional. Right. Like a real... But Provodnikov is very slick, too. He's deceptively slick. Sure. He just fucking hits really hard, too. Yeah, yeah. It's a murderous puncher. Yeah, but you don't look at him and think, wow, he's, you know... He's like, yeah, but he, that murderous punching ability is something you just don't... You can't earn. I agree. You, there's a thing about punching. You either can hit hard or you can't hit hard. You could take a guy and teach him till the cows come home, or you could find some guy who's working construction somewhere, and he could punch a bag, and you just go, Jesus Christ. And you know what it's like? It's like throwing a baseball, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same. Yeah. Mo- it's essentially the same mechanics. Yeah. And right, same thing with baseball. You can't really teach. It's hard to teach that. Like some right. guys just have an arm, mm-hmm. right? And some guys just don't. Right. Now look at those guys who have those arms in Major League Baseball. Tell me what color they are. It's all white guys. Pretty much. Not all. What but the fuck? See, man. Now we're you. confused. Telling but you. there's a difference between boxing power, the punching power, and throwing balls for some reason, and I don't know what it is, but I don't know. I don't know if they're ter- completely correct uh, connected. I don't know. There's if, something like, about getting maximum torque. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just feel like it's. I feel like it's similar. I would think so, but I've. Well, it is in some it's ways. Fe- There's a guy named Takanori Gomi who was a very good pitcher in Japan, and he became a knockout fighter as an MMA fighter. Oh, and yeah. he throws punches a lot like. <laughs> See, yeah, he yeah. throws punches a lot yeah. like the way a guy throws a fastball. He's yeah. always out of balance. He throws yeah. everything behind his shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. Similar mechanics, I would say, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I think, uh, well, you know, boxing, I think you can get away with having shorter arms, whereas pitchers seems to be like that's a, mm. a big factor in it, the mechanical advantage of the yeah, longer Yeah, Tyson had short arms, didn't frames. he? Yeah. Tyson had short arms, yeah. But he got maximum, he, but no, but the thing about Tyson that people don't, <laughs> talking about boxing, whatever, he got maximum leverage with his body, right? People mm-hmm. miss that. They think he was just this huge dude with giant muscles. But if you look at the way he threw a hook, he got maximum leverage. That's, what, that's where the power yeah. came from. There's lots of guys just as bigger bigger who can't punch like that right and also his <clears throat> speed was ridiculous he could throw a 10 punch combination in two seconds sure like literally you there's yeah. there's videos of him hin- hitting the bags like right. yeah. and you're just like that's like a lightweight that's yeah. a 135 pound guy meanwhile he's 220 yeah. and he also had giant legs and that's where a lot of the power comes from like if you look at pacquiao's legs sure. pacquiao has enormous legs sure, but again it's the it's the mechanics of it. You could be just that big mm-hmm. and punch like a girl. Well, you also could be. You know, I mean, the mechanics. It's not the same with everybody. There's guys that are built like Tyson, but for whatever yeah. reason, they just can't generate that kind of power. Tim Lincecum, the Giants pitcher, he's a great example, right? He's like a buck forty or something. Is he, he really? And he can fucking throw ninety whatever it is miles per hour. He's yeah, a buck forty. I don't know. He looks like he's very small. He's very skinny. Wow. Little little wiry guy, and he but they show he like gets this incredible torque in his torso hmm. across his chest. 
Well, so. p- proper mechanics are, are gigantic when it comes to martial arts. It's a sure. huge thing. You know, like technique is uh, sure. virtually everything. Yeah. But then there's technique amongst gifted athletes. But yeah, I guess so getting that particular leverage and mastering that, having that mechanics is something that's not really always, you can't really teach it is what we're getting at, you right? You can't yeah, teach I agree with bone you. structure I agree too. with you. Well, yeah. Bone structure is the big one. Geometry, body geometry. Like right? George Foreman, he had canned hams for fists. <laughs> yeah. They were the biggest fucking sure. hands ever. If you saw his hands, like he'd make a fist. Oh, he'd yeah. go, what the fuck? And that was why George Foreman could hit guys on the arms, and their arms would go <clears> numb. Right. You know, they just had this weird mechanical advantage. It's true. Yeah, the mechanical advantage of bone size and density and shape, the, the, the width of the shoulders as well, mm-hmm. directly translates to punching power. It's yeah. very strange yeah, stuff. Yeah, I know. Like it is like, it's like an alchemy. It's like an alchemy. You, mm-hmm. can't, you can't necessarily, you can't look at a guy and predict it, right? Not only that, it's genetically <clears throat> variable. Like I have a friend, uh, my friend Ian McCall, he's a, a, sure. a, a highly uh, ranked uh, UFC fighter. His brother has brutal power. I mean, he, he jokes around about it. He was like, my brother got the power. I don't have any power. Hmm. Like his brother has this brutal knockout power, apparently. Hmm. His brother doesn't even fight. Is but his brother the same size, like tiny? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but he's yeah. just, that doesn't even matter. There's this guy named John Lineker who's a flyweight. I know. He's yeah. a Tremendous power. Ridiculous knockout puncher. <clears throat> right. And he's 125 pounds, yeah, but he, he hits way harder than anybody else in the division. It's yeah. just one of those weird things. It's I like, know. Why, does, why can he do that? I don't know. I know. That's yeah. weird. Anyway, but he's white. He's a white guy. <laughs> he's Brazilian, actually. Lineker is? Lineker's Brazilian. Oh, okay. Yeah. So he's right. kind of white. Yeah, right. You know, the Brazilian... Well, uh, you can be white and Brazilian. Oh, yeah. most certainly. Right. But Brazil is such a melting pot. Yeah. Well, they have a they have a tripartite racial structure. So mm-hmm. With Japanese, a lot of Japanese influence, well, there's a the, lot of black, a lot of right. uh, Portuguese, of course, the language being Portuguese. Sure, yeah. That's a very unique and amazing Well, country. there it's weird. You know, here you're either white or black and that's all there is. But there mm-hmm. you can be white. I think, I don't know what the... I don't know what the name is for the people who are mixed race, but they have a name for it in a category, which is different. Right? Yeah, I don't know. So there's black, there's white, and then there's something else. Yeah. There's a lot going on over there. There is. I mean, that's that's where all, I mean, the real MMA started. That's the birth of, I mean, that's, you know, you want to talk culture. That's an incredible cultural melting pot. So there you go. How do you explain that? Right. So why is why has Brazil become sort of the capital of martial arts? Well, um, it's arguably not the capital, but it's certainly where it came from as far as like high level mixed martial mixed arts. Martial arts yeah. But it, what's really crazy is it can all be boiled down to one family, the right, Gracies. The Gracies yeah. It's I mean that's the fucking that's the seed of martial arts. That is the one but why, most important family. Right, but why but why did it take off like it did in that, in that particular country, right? It's well, sort it of hard. didn't until it came to America. That's what people don't realize. Uh, Brazil, like, everybody thought that jiu-jitsu was gigantic in Brazil. Like, everybody in America thought right. that jiu-jitsu was gigantic in Brazil when it came over here. Like, oh, the, all the Brazilians know Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like, no, it was a s- small clan of bad motherfuckers that, mm-hmm. that had figured it out. And, yeah, they had world championships over there. And, yes, the level of jiu-jitsu was much higher in Brazil than it was anywhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. But it was still a fairly small group in comparison to what it's become today. Right. And that happened in 1993 when they came to America and started the Ultimate Fighting Championship, and, which was and, started by a Brazilian jiu-jitsu family. And won. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, Hoist yeah. Gracie dominated yeah. it, and his brother um, started it all off. If it wasn't for Hori and Gracie, there would have been no Ultimate Fighting Championship. If it wasn't for Horian's father, Ilio, there would have been no family of champions that, right. that could show the world this incredible new style. Yeah. 
It all came from this one family, which is just amazing. Yeah. If that guy wasn't alive, if there was no Elio Gracie, no Carlos Gracie, and no Maeda. Maeda was the guy who came to Brazil, the Japanese guy, uh-huh. who came and taught them judo and jiu-jitsu. If it wasn't for those three people, there's no ultimate fighting championship, and mixed martial arts is set back fucking a thousand years. Mm. I mean, who knows? Yeah. There's more evolution in martial arts since 1993 than there have been in the past thousand years. Oh, yeah. No doubt. So that's all from three people. Yeah. Well. Which is crazy. No, it's from millions of people. But it's three yeah. people yeah, yeah, started yeah. it all off. Right. Maeda, who teaches Carlos, <laughs> and Carlos and Ilio. Sure. But like the question is, why did that become so popular, right? That's the, which I can't answer. Culture is hard. To, you it's, yeah, you it's asked about hard. the cause of cultures, right? right? It's very hard to like nail down the cause of a culture. Why do, you know, why do we believe what we believe? Why did that particular thing, that sport, become this international phenomenon? I don't mm-hmm. know. Well, the, the, for martial arts, for mixed martial arts, it's pretty simple because everybody wants to know who's the baddest motherfucker on the planet. We always thought it was a boxer yeah. until we saw a boxer getting taken down and just strangled at will, and they were mm-hmm. so helpless. Right. And we saw like James Tony who's this great fighter, who's like one of the best boxers, pound for pound, I mean, of our generation. Mm-hmm. James Tony's an outstanding boxer. Mm-hmm. Randy Couture takes him down like it's nothing mm-hmm. and just dominates him mm-hmm. like, like a joke. Like, right. Like he didn't belong in there. But see, that's a cultural question too. Why do we like to know? who the best badass is, who the biggest badass is, what the, what's the most effective martial art. Is right? that cultural? That was you a, think that's that was not the, just genetic, just a male thing? That was the founding question of the UFC, right? What mm-hmm. is the best, most effective martial art? Yes. Right? Yeah, so answering that was what the UFC's mission was, right? Right. In a way, right? So, but that, that kind of begs the question, like, why do we give a shit? It's just <laughs> male-dominator well, chimpanzee DNA okay. that's just still running around inside of our yeah, heads. Well. You know, why do, we, uh, why do we want to know who has the biggest dick? Why do we want to know <laughs> who has the biggest Not yacht? all of us do, Joe, you know. Well, some of us do. <laughs> pretending you don't care. Some of us don't need to ask. You well, know listen, yeah. that's cute. <laughs> But, I mean, these are questions that are just, they're just normal, natural human questions, Mm. especially when you're dealing with primates. Mm. Don't you think? Is that not not a good enough explanation? I'm always skeptical when people make uh, claims about cultures. Well, no, it's not, no, it's uh, natural determinism. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like tracing it back to something in nature. And I think it's it's very tricky to do that. Well, also, we live in an incredibly warlike society and we are running on the momentum of many, many wars and our dominance over these wars. I mean, our, our, our victories, World War One, World War Two, not so much Vietnam, but all this other, the, the military-industrial complex, which has sort of infiltrated the entire world with military bases. I mean, that, that's our DNA. It's one of the reasons why Canadians are so much different than us. Wait, wait, wait. You think that Americans have gone to war the way we have for some biological reason? No, that's oh, not oh, what I'm oh. saying. I'm saying well, that the momentum de- of those those conflicts is a part of our culture. Oh, cultural DNA. Yes. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sure. I mean, the momentum. Yeah. Not not DNA, like as in Cult- genetics, but I mean cultural DNA. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sure. Col- the yeah. the momentum of it. Just sure. The, the fact that we're all born in a society that watches. I mean, how many fucking war movies have there been? Sure. Jesus Christ. I mean, every sure. time. You turn around, there's some new movie about Americans going and kicking ass in war and fighting battles and killing the Nazis. I mean, we probably made a th- way more movies about Nazis 
you know, about killing Nazis. I mean, we're still making it. That what was it, Clinton and Glorious Bastards? Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah, Tarantino. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we still a good Nazi killing movie. Fuck yeah, sure. man. Sign well, now us it's up. now it's the Afghans. I just watched Lone uh, Survivor. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Marky Mark movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Marky Mark, he's gonna be Marky Mark forever. Sorry, I'm that age. You know, yeah, I can't. Well. I can't get over when you're that my age. You can't get over. That. I say it too. I just thought it was right? funny that you but, called him Marky. You Mark. have to be. You have to be our age, right? <laughs> yeah, if you're in your 40s, he's Marky Mark. Yeah, I'm remember sorry. the Calvin I'm sorry, Klein Mr. Ads. Wahlberg. I'm hey, sorry. Very good actor. Nothing. No disrespect. He yeah. but, he's but now, Mark. so now we're killing a lot of Arabs in the movies. You know? Right. True. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So, yeah, interesting. But the the idea being that we have a very warlike society. Absolutely. I mean, the probably arguably the most warlike. Absolutely. If you look at it in terms of like history, I, right? would, I would not argue against that. I yeah, mean, it kind of has to be. If there's a hundred plus military bases all throughout the country, if you look or at, the world, the world rather, and if you look at casualties involved, you know, um, created by American military interventions, right? Beginning with the American Revolution, Civil War is a fucking bloodbath. Mm-hmm. Spanish American War, which we all forget about, killed tens of thousands of Filipinos. Mm. World War One, another fucking bloodbath. Right. World What's War the number? Two. What's the total number since the seventeen seventy six? Awesome to, question, and I should. I'm surprised I haven't added it up. But um, more I'm, or less than fifty million. Oh, that Americans have killed? Yeah. Well, that's the hard thing to determine. Well, first of all, a lot of these people we don't know about, right? Because, like, Vietnamese, we don't know exactly how many people died under those bombs. Right. Uh, You know, the estimates range from one to two million Vietnamese died in that war, but we don't know. I mean, a lot of them were vaporized, um, so, or just died in the jungle and no one ever found them. So, but it's not a bad, I would guess that the U.S., the United States of America has probably killed more people than anyone else. What about Genghis Khan, though? Oh, God, we crush him. Really? Oh, yeah, because first of all, he wasn't using modern uh, weaponry. But do you know how many people he killed? No, but I can't, there's no way. He, how many do you think? I have no idea, but just just Hiroshima alone. There's no way he killed that many people. They believe that during oh, yeah, Genghis you know? Khan's lifetime, between the time he was born and the time uh, you know his direct lineage died... Between, depending on who you ask, 20 and 70 million people. 11% of the population of the world. How are they counting that, though? I have no idea. Yeah, not with weapons. I mean, some of that could have been disease and dislocation and starvation. They just fucking killed entire populations of cities. They killed a million people. Direct murder of people? They had so many bodies stacked up that the Khwarizmian Shah had sent this uh, scout team to go check out Jin, China. They had gotten there after the Mongols had already invaded. And they getting close, they had abandoned their mission because the roads were so covered in dead bodies and decay that people hmm. were getting sick and dying. The roads were filled with mud, and the mud was actually the, de- the decaying bodies and made the roads unstable. They saw a pile of bones in the distance that they thought was a snow-covered mountain. Hmm. And as they got closer, they realized it was bones. Okay. Yeah, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History does a five-part piece okay. on, on the Wrath of the Khans. Mm-hmm. So much so that there was a recent study that showed that they did core samples, that the carbon footprint of Earth changed during his lifetime Hmm. because he killed so many people. Wow. I didn't know this. Okay, so fine. So we're second. 11% of the people <laughs> the popu- on, the, on, the, on the earth. We're the runners up then. Okay. He, can, I mean, he can be the champion. He, yeah. he's, he wins in a big way because they were using fucking arrows. Yeah, arrows exactly. And, and bodies that they would light on fire that's and shoot Im- with catapults. Yeah, that's impressive. 
with no nuclear bombs and no tanks. Yeah. That's impressive. And no, you know, fighter jets. But yeah, but my, my, the reason for bringing that up is I wish you had known more about Genghis Khan because I would ask, well, how does someone, be, how does a culture become that warlike? Right. Because that was like some complete next level <clears throat> shit. Yeah, but even experts in that field wouldn't be able to answer that. Right. Right. I mean, I, I don't think, I don't think they can even try. I they mean, would speculate. It's too far yeah, away. Also, there's so, for that era, there's so few records. It's right. really difficult to do history. Right. I mean, we yeah. know some stuff, but it's we know so much less than we do about the 20th century. Right, right. Yeah, yeah 1220. You know, what the fuck did yeah, they write down? Exactly. Right. Yeah, they do have the secret history of the Mongol race. I mean, they, they wrote their own history, but, you know, right. it's hard. History being written by the winners exactly. is difficult anyway. Exactly. When the winners actually killed 11% of the population. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Who else is left? <laughs> what are they going to say about it? I wonder. Hmm. Well, they were saying in Carlin's work, he was talking about how that's there's a great argument about Iraq and that Baghdad literally never recovered from Genghis Khan invading in the 1200s. Like that was the the Muslim people, the the Islamic people were at the head, the front of the line when it came to science and philosophy, and it was just a completely different idea of the the Islamic culture than we look at today. But Genghis Khan, they sacked Baghdad and killed everyone, killed the entire town. Mm -hmm. They were the original double-tap missile. Not only <laughs> they would kill the entire town, they would go away and then come back several days later and kill anybody who had been hiding. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were just unbelievably ruthless. So was there an ideology driving this? That's a good question. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know I don't enough know. about it. I just know what I've heard him talk about. Yeah. I'm just a lowly U.S. historian. We don't well, do what's that. the ideology for what we've done? Ah, well, that's another question. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hey. So, good question. So, I mean... God, guts, glory, ram. <clears throat> yeah, well, so there's that. The John McCain school, right? Which is like, defend American honor. It's very masculine. You right. Know, they, they wronged us, so we got to go fucking mm. avenge ourselves. I mean, I do think that's like, that's kind of like the base of the Republican Party, you know? I think that that's why they want to go abroad. They don't... It's not really even ideological. It's sort of this primal masculine urge to defend one's aunt, family and honor. Um, that's, that's one reason we've gone and killed people. Um, then the other is economic, right? Which everyone knows about, you know, the war was for oil, right? Or natural resources or, um, you know, strategic advantage against our enemies, right? And then the third, which is what I, I talk a lot about, is this humanitarian shit, right? Which is like, we need to go out and save the world. We need to go out and make people be like us. Um, mm. And I think that drives actually a lot more foreign policy than we give it credit for. Uh, especially now, especially with a, the Obama administration. So if you look at people inside of his administration, like Samantha Power and Susan Rice and even Obama himself and even Joe Biden, they, they really come from that kind of thinking about, you know, they're like community organizers. They're people who did go out into the ghettos to like uplift these poor people, right? That's, right. Who, they, that's who they are. So they've, and they've said this, if you ask them or read them what they have to say, they say, we need to go and save the Libyans. So that means we got to bomb Libya. We need to save the Syrians. So we got to bomb Syria. We got to save, all, and they're big on Africa. Susan Rice and Samantha Power have been calling for invade, basically invading Africa for a long, long time to stop another Rwanda from happening, to stop another genocide from happening. Um, they, it's, it's this very, it's this incredible thing that's, that Americans and the British really kind of created and perfected over the last 120 or so years. The British were all about this, right? Uh, South Africa was all about, you know, it was about taking the goods down there, the diamonds and the minerals and all that shit, but it was also about uplifting the savages and all of Africa. So is it having this ulterior motive 
uh, like justifies the invasion? Like, you know, no, having see, resources there justifies the invasion? Right. Some people think that, that they're being dishonest. I don't. I really? think they're true believers. Not all of them. Not all of them. I think. But you think Obama's a true believer? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think he really, and if you read his stuff, a lot of people don't know this, but like if you read, he has an article in 2007 when he was just starting to run for president in Foreign, foreign Affairs Journal. He says, America needs to be the world's leader. And he says, with that, for that, to do that, we need to increase the military dramatically. We need to have more Marines, more Army soldiers, the whole nine yards. He called for increasing the military budget. People don't realize this in 2007. And he said, because we need to lead the world. We need to be everywhere in the world. Hillary's the same way. Well, how do you uh, reconcile the differences between what he said when he was running for office and what he did when he got into the office? I think he got a lot of pushback. You know, I think a lot of people, both in Congress and sort of in the public generally, have been less and less interested in war for a lot of good reasons. And one of the interesting things is it's been, as you said, it's been left and right. You know, it's been people on the left and the right have been less and less interested in the war. So the, for the first time in decades, we have sev many Republican politicians who are basically anti-war, you know, and and powerfully and loudly anti-war, like Rand Paul. Mm -hmm. Um He's and, sort of like got a libertarian bend, kind to him, of, though. kind of. Although most libertarians hate his guts because he's he's kind of he's kind of diverged. He's from, a little wishy. He's definitely wishy for them. Yeah. Is that because he's like seen what's happened to his dad? I think it's because he's running for president in a real way. Whereas uh -huh. his, for his dad, it was always just a protest. Right. Right. He wasn't really going to win ever, so he could be pure ideologically. So you think he's playing ball a little I bit? I think so. Who knows? But does I guess he have so. a chance? Small one, I'd say. <sighs> small one it's going to be interesting so what's what's going to be fascinating and i hope this happens is that it's rand versus hillary <laughs> because on foreign policy and on a lot and on drugs by the way uh she's going to be the right winger and he's going to be the left winger mm. <laughs> she, she, how weird she sucks on the war on drugs and on foreign policy she wants to bomb the fuck out of everybody and she's all about incarcerating people for drugs really yeah she's but well, she's certainly never said anything otherwise um, and every time she's at, been at, and she's vo her voting record. If you look at her voting record, it's all for the war on drugs, top to bottom. And her fucking husband was like a leader of it. Rand, on the other hand, is not perfect on foreign policy, but he's way less interventionist than she is, right? Much more hesitant to go abroad with the 82nd Airborne. And he's awesome on drugs. You know, he's about legalizing weed tomorrow, and he's probably soft even on the powders the big fear that everyone has with a the idea of a non-interventionalist foreign policy is that some big evil government will build up mm -hmm. without without us being there to smack them down mm -hmm. some isis type scenario will get completely out of control and you know start killing americans abroad and right. start uh, launching attacks that's the big fear right, right. well okay so you know that's an argument for having a powerful defensive military Right? That's not what we've ever had. We've never had a defensive military. Well, you would know from studying martial arts that the best defense is a good offense. Mm, you can also, I've heard the other, I've heard the flip of that, right? <laughs> like it's the other way around too, right? Good defense is a good offense. But, uh, I, well, I mean, the point is that the U.S. military historically has never been used defensively, really. It's never, ever, even in World War II. I mean, you, it's hard to even argue that Pearl Harbor was, you know, it was first of all a lot of people have said that the Japanese were forced to attack Pearl Harbor but but certainly apart from World War II I mean the US military has never been used truly in defense of us and that's what people need to come to grips with um, so you know if you want to talk about changing that pattern you know and creating a military 
and, uh, that is truly defensive um, and changing the culture so that we are interested in our military only as a defensive mechanism means, right, then, then we, can have, we have something to talk about. But that's not the way it's ever been used. Right. And what would what would be the argument for? I mean, is there is there an argument for beefing up our presence abroad to prevent peace or, or prevent or to, to ensure peace? Rather, I mean, is there an argument for like the McCain school of thought? Yeah, like beefing up our sure. our positions in all these different parts of the world just yeah. to make sure that like an ISIS type situation could never rise up. Yeah, there's definitely an argument. Um, it's called Pax Americana, the American peace. Um, a great uh, example of that argument um, was a document written by a think tank in 2000, 99 or 2000. Uh, you may have heard of this. Um, Project for a New American Century. Okay, it was a think tank in Washington, D.C., um, which was full of people who ended up in the Bush administration neoconservatives. <clears throat> and in that document, um, re it's called Rebuilding America's Defenses. You can Google it. It's online. Um, in that document, they call for a massive buildup of the U.S. military. They called for a massive deployment of troops and bases and aircraft carriers all across the world. Um, and they said that that is necessary to maintain world order, American dominance, and they said peace. <laughs> And one of the scariest things about that document is that in it, and everyone should look at this, it says, this is in 2000, it says, we can't convince Congress or the American people to go for this program, to spend mm -hmm. way more money on our defense, on our military, and, and build these bases all over the world and send aircraft carriers everywhere, unless, they said in the document, unless there is a precipitating event like Pearl, Pearl Harbor. Harbor. Yeah. Um, now, that's, the, that's always the argument. Now, I'm not a truther. I don't think they actually did fly the... I don't think the Bush administration was responsible for 9-11, but no question about it, it served their purposes. Well, you would know that quote. There's a famous quote about any um, situation that's not capitalized on, any tragic event that's not capitalized on is truly a tragedy. Yeah, There's right. some military quote um, about that. Never let a... Well, I know that what's been said recently is never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's there. I don't remember what the, yeah, but it's something along those lines. That's essentially what the idea. And that's what I've had a problem with. A lot of people that say that, Oh, the government planned it. Look how they capitalized on it, man. Just because somebody capitalized on something doesn't mean they planned it. It's just, right. it's much more likely yeah. they saw an opening to yeah. pass through. Like that's also been the, arg the argument about Oklahoma city. When Oklahoma City, there was a, a radical sweep of legislation that went through that couldn't go through anti-terrorism type legislation post Oklahoma City. And like, well, they planned Oklahoma City. They blew up that building and they, they blamed it on Timothy McVeigh in order to push this and no fertilizer. I mean, there's all these compelling arguments about it that are really confusing as fuck because you get trapped down that rabbit hole of, you know, those wacky websites. Yeah. They don't need a conspiracy, right? right. <laughs> they got what they wanted yeah. in 9-11 in and in Oklahoma City. They got the justification, the rationale for a massive ramping up of the U.S. military and the state surveillance apparatus and the rest of it. But what's your take on false flag events <clears throat> that have actually happened? Like what? Well, okay, let's have a, a planned one that didn't happen. Northwoods. What's Northwoods? I don't even know what that is. You don't know what Operation Northwoods no, is? No, maybe. Wow. 
Operation Northwoods was uh, signed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1962, and it was a plan to uh, get people enthusiastic about a war with Cuba. They were going to blow up a drone jetliner, blame it on the Cubans. Mm. They were going to arm Cuban friendlies okay, yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and uh, sure. bomb Guantanamo Bay. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were going to kill American civilians. Right. And they were going to blame it on Cuba. And that, that was going to get us, it was vetoed by Kennedy. Sure. Yeah, this was the Kennedy era CIA, Kennedy era CIA which mm-hmm. was one of the crazier iterations of the CIA. Yeah, so they had a lot of that shit going on then. A lot of, there was absolutely conspiracy, straight up closed door cigar smoking conspiracies right. in that CIA and in other CIAs too. That was kind of the peak of that, mm-hmm. you know, blowing up Castro's cigars and all that shit. Um, right, yeah. They part, wanted to yeah. put like dynamite inside cigars. It, yeah, it was those dudes. It's that kind of group right then who were part of that. So, That's oh sure. a hilarious idea, isn't it? A real exploding <laughs> cigar. Like fucking geniuses. <laughs> Yeah, if you want, it's a really fun. I mean, it's funny now. Thank God they weren't six. They have never tried these things, but they had all kinds of plans like that that were utterly ridiculous um, to get to basically to get Castro out. Right. So sure, I mean, and I'm sure right as we speak in the Pentagon, someone's coming coming up with some secret plan to do something bad to somebody. Well, wasn't that an issue with um, when the Bush administration was leaving? They were trying to plan something against Iran. There was some sort of a false flag against Iran that Dick Cheney was uh, accused of being a part of. Mm. Certainly never possible. came to fruition. I wouldn't put it past them. Yeah. But those those things can happen. Oh, absolutely. But they're very difficult to organize and pull off. Absolutely. And on a yeah. scale of like 9-11, the amount of people that would have to be involved. Like, yeah. The point is, again, they don't need it, you know? Like they right. got the, as you were saying, they've got their culture behind them. Well, right? it's also the idea about something like ISIS. Like why yeah. would you cause a false flag when you could just leave a bunch of weapons lying around, there let you- a bunch of assholes suit up and get crazy and then shoot them down? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that's hard to wrap your head around, isn't it? That's yep. that's hard to believe that that's a, a real a real strategy. Yeah, it's really depressing and scary, actually. I mean, if you look at 1984, that's what that is. That book yeah. is about that book is about endless war. That's the theme of that book, and it's looking more and more like that. You, as a student and a professor of history, as a guy who's really studied it over and over again. What do you see a solution to this sort of a quagmire? Do you see a, a potential road out of this? Yeah, out now. That's out my, now. That's yeah. Your, tomorrow, today. You know, I mean, and that's and let everybody over there just blow themselves up. Let them figure it out. ISIS rises to power. I they could, have a fucking hundred billion dollars in nuclear power and. Just yeah. just deal with it. Yeah, I mean, I think every piece of intervention makes it worse for us. I do. I think that. You know, until we started bombing ISIS, they had no reason to attack us. Now they have a good reason to fly planes into our buildings. It also seems to me that as technology improves and as our ability to kill people easier and quickly and quicker improves, it gets weirder and weirder when you're willing to engage in war. Like post Hiroshima, it became this fact that nuclear power and nuclear arsenals existed and it can be done but it hasn't been done since it's like it's so atrocious and it kills so many civilians and it's so non-surgical that we we decide we're not going to do that anymore mm-hmm. but it's always there we're pointing them at the soviet union the soviet union's pointing them at us everyone during your your high school years and my high school years we were terrified of being attacked by russia and they we're going to mutually assured self-destruction was the only thing keeping all this from happening mm-hmm. but as technology gets better it's it's almost easier for people to cause mass destruction. Almost easier yeah. now than ever before. That's true. It becomes even scarier when you're you're you now you have drones and now you have suitcase nukes and now you have all this new technology, dispersement of 
toxins and absolutely so here's you know that's the reason not to piss them off yeah <laughs> so that's my out now position right that's what that leads into it's like let's if you kick a dog, is it more likely to bite you? I but think so. The CIA would say, no, listen, we need to keep these motherfuckers right when we put our hand right in their forehead, let them keep swinging. Yeah, that way, if we ever have to pop a cap at them, we'll pull the gun out with our left hand and... Tsh. Yeah, but all of that shit was created by U.S. policy. Osama bin Laden was trained by the CIA, right? Mm, I mean, the yeah. Mujahideen against the Soviets. That he, he got weapons and training and he was their buddies, right? He, the Not whole only thing, that, they instituted the idea of blowing yourself up. I mean, this holy war thing, this jihad as a holy war, it really, that that wasn't a part of their culture until mm. the uh, the CIA came along and taught them it. Yeah, no, for sure, yeah. Um, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> the whole thing, the whole history of the last 30 or so years in the Middle East, that's all, all the bad stuff is created by U.S. policy. But it's so hard for us to step out and go, well, just let I, them figure it out on their yeah, own. Yeah, I understand. We're like, nope, nope, we got to be there. No, got to be now. there keeping the peace. Out now, man. What would you do about ISIS if you were the president? Let president go. Russell. The, the people of, so, right. So there are very substantial armies surrounding ISIS right now that are not the Americans, right? right. The Kurds have an army. The Iraq has an army. Saudis don't want those dudes around. And we're a part of this attack on them. It's yeah, not just the United States but attack. ISIS is maybe twenty to 30,000 19 to 20 year old dudes with very, is that really what it is? something like that. I've never seen an estimate more than 30, 30 K. Um, they're a bunch of fucking teenage lunatics, you know, uh, basically, I mean, that's the core of them. And then in terms of like the hardcore membership people, the estimates I've seen are more like 10,000. Um, they, what are they going to do against the Kurdish army, the Iraqi army and the Saudis? I don't see it. Um, so yeah, good luck dudes. And also on top of that, as I was saying earlier, Good luck trying to impose Sharia on a whole population that's streaming The Simpsons through its satellite dishes. <laughs> Good luck with that. But when you see these guys getting their heads cut off on television, mm -hmm. that, to me, like the, the big production of taking people, especially taking people that don't deserve it, mm -hmm. that's one of the weird ones to me. That's like, what could be gained out of cutting someone's head? I've heard people say... Terror. Well, yeah, I've also heard people say that this is to try to get Americans to not go there. And I'm like, that is the last thing oh, of course that, not. that would work for. No. You're going to kill journalists and cut their heads off? No, We're going to demand action. They're obviously baiting us into it. But why? Uh, well, for the reasons we've been talking about. They know that if, if Americans intervene and start bombing people, they're going to kill some civilians. And guess who, who will be uh, great recruits, recruiting material, the families of those civilians killed? So you think it's a, a strategy to create martyrs? Probably. We don't know for sure, but, I, but that, it would be a smart one. Yeah. Makes wow, sense to me. What a weird strategy. Well, no, to get the is U.S. Is it just short-sighted? Is it possible that they're just, they're just not thinking that far in advance? No, I mean, the strategy is to get us to drop bombs on the people of the Middle East, right? Which tends to, it's the blowback theory, which mm -hmm. tends to cause people to dislike the United States and join groups like ISIS, right? So it's a great, as David Petraeus himself said, it's a great, it's actually a great recruiting tool. So U.S. foreign policy interventions in the Middle East has served as the greatest recruiting tool for Al-Qaeda and ISIS, of course, right? You get people to be pissed off and want to, I mean, what would cause you to join a terrorist group? I mean, the only thing that would cause me to do that is if someone dropped a fucking bomb on my family. Right. Right? Of you know, I'd be, I'd be not a nice person. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, and I'd be willing to do all kinds of crazy shit I wasn't willing to do prior to that. Right? What better way than to bait, get the United States to start doing that? Create a whole population of potential recruits. Wow. That's a of fascinating course. end game. They're, not, they're crazy, but they're not stupid.
<laughs> That's terrifying. It's just, it's it's terrifying when you, I remember when I was a boy. I I think I was probably seven, somewhere around then when the Vietnam War ended between seven and ten, something like that. I was living in San Francisco, so it was between seven and ten, and um, the war ended. And I remember thinking to myself as a young boy, oh, they're done with war. Beautiful. This is good. <laughs> I, I really remember thinking that. Like, yeah. like people figured out that war is terrible and we'll never go to war again. And then when we invaded Iraq, after Iraq invaded Kuwait, I think I was probably 21. And I remember thinking, I can't fucking believe we're at war again. Like, I thought we were done. I thought people had realized that war is ridiculous and we would never go to war again. Mm-hmm. And... That was just the tip of the iceberg in comparison to this insanity that's happened post 9-11. The post 9-11 insanity is just this perpetual war, Mm -hmm. the culture of war. Every bomb we drop there perpetuates the war. That's my point. Because it creates more enemies. Or we just fuck so many people up, there's no enemies left. Right. So, right. That's one option. You can kill all of them. Kill everybody. Kill all of them. Okay. Kill them all, let God sort them out. Yeah. Isn't that like a Marine yeah. t-shirt or something? So let's do that. Let's do that. Let's drop many, many, many <sighs> nu- nuclear bombs all across the Arabian plain <laughs> and see what happens. Yeah. So there's two options. Kill them all or get out. Yes. Or do what yes. we're doing and ensure perpetual war. Yeah, I, that's how I see it. I think. Yeah. Do you buy into the conspiracies like the Eisenhower conspiracy when he was leaving, leaving office, when he was saying, beware of the military industrial complex, there's a machine that wants to go to war? Do you, do you buy that they look at this as this perpetual war as a constant profit source? Um, so defense contractors is what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about also research universities who are in, working with the defense contractors. Of course, damn, they love war. Sure, Raytheon wants all the wars in the world, right? Um, Allegedly. <laughs> no, definitely. Um, but um, are they, the question is, are they really running the show? Right. To what, or to what extent are to they running To what extent? The, yeah, now we know that if you look at Hillary Clinton's list of donors, it's like she, she's been called the senator from Lockheed Martin because she oh. gets so many donations from them. And she's, is she the only one? Of course not. But, you know, they have other interests. They have constituents. They have all sorts of competing interests. I think the defense contractors have some power, just like the Israeli lobby has some power. But I actually, at the end of the day, mm, I think that they're autonomous and I think they have their own motives. And I think a lot of them are, especially with people like Hillary and Obama and others and the neocons under Bush, um, had an ideological motivation, yeah, which was Pax Americana, which was a world order controlled by us or controlled by them, I should say. When you see the difference between the way Obama was, like the the Hope website, Hope and Change, whatever mm. the fuck it was, when uh, they, they went into this, they had this whole section on whistleblowers about, you know, uh, helping whistleblowers alert, you know, the American people to crime and to things that are going on that are unconstitutional. And then it's all been removed from the website, and now you see Hmm. how horrible he's been on not just whistleblowers, but on the press, and on on, on people, forcing people to divulge their sources, and... The worst. Yeah, the worst. The ACLU has called him the worst president. How the fuck does that happen? Is that just a guy that's just under pressure once he gets into office? Or is that how he was all along? I, I think it's who he was all along. So, so he was just bullshit. You got everyone. So in 2007, 2008, when he's running for president, I, was, I felt like I was on an island in a sea of crazy people because I was reading what he was writing. I was listening to his speeches. I read the Democratic Party's platform for 2008. And in it, 
it was all about the military industrial complex. It was all about expanding American power and control abroad. It was about increasing the military budget, increasing the number of Marines and army soldiers. It was about not repealing the Patriot Act. It was about a very powerful state, nation state that controlled not just people abroad, but people here. Dude has always been about that, always. He's always been, he's always been a nationalist first, um, an American nationalist first, and everything else is second. And so, yeah, I was sort of listening to these people talk about him being a peace candidate and someone who would eliminate the Patriot Act and someone who would, you know, never spy on Americans. And I'm like, no, look at who he was. When he was running, he was saying this publicly. He wasn't keeping it secret. It just people wanted to see something else in him for various reasons. Because he's articulate as opposed to Bush, because he's well-educated, because he's black. black. Mm-hmm. You said black with me. You were holding on to black. I was. <laughs> Biting, biting my time there, yeah. Uh, well, I, you know, one of the most disturbing moments of the debates, to me, was when him and McCain were going at it, and uh, McCain corrected him about Afghanistan. And McCain, you know, we were talking about, like, just going into Afghanistan and sending in troops, and he's like, hold on, do you know what the fuck you're talking about? Essentially, McCain was like, have you been to Afghanistan? Do you mm. know what it's like there? Mm. Like, that, that place is run the same way it was run when Alexander the Great was around. Right. It's really not that much different. It's incredibly difficult terrain, really hard to get anywhere. People can hide anywhere. Yeah. It's essentially you have one city in the entire country. You got Kabul and then you got warlords. Mm-hmm. Warlords that control small groups of people and they're scattered throughout the country. Right. Good luck. Yeah, so when John McCain is taking the peace position in a debate with you, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that right? should tell you something about who you are. Yeah. Well, for me it was like No, he's a warmonger. He always has been. Obama. Yeah, yeah. Always has been. Always. always That's always. incredible. Oh, yeah. Hope and change, man. What are you talking about? What mm. happened to hope and change? Restoring America's Leadership, 2007 Foreign Affairs article. Everyone should read it. Yeah, everyone should, I guess. It's I short, to too. It. It'll, take, it'll take you five minutes. Yeah. The, what do you think uh, about, like, the WikiLeaks stuff and the Edward Snowden stuff and all this, this new, the digital age that we live in is very fascinating to me in that there's just a certain amount of impossibility in controlling data mm-hmm. when you get to like a large organization like the United States military. No matter how, how well they put up their firewalls, no matter how good they guard their data, you're still dealing with human beings and young human beings, by the way. Yeah, it's weird. Technology can cut either way, right? So mm-hmm. it's like it's on the one hand, it's very difficult for those large institutions to control their information now, right? We can get in there like Snowden did and like WikiLeaks has. We can yeah. get in there and disperse it and everybody fucking knows what they're up to. Yeah. So that's kind of good, I think, for democracy and for freedom and for us and for our privacy and power, et cetera, against them. Um, but on the other hand, they can use it against us and are all the time, right? So right. they have all these cameras everywhere and all these cities, you know, New York City, London. I think London, isn't there a camera on every corner in London now? Well, how about Camden, New Jersey, where they yeah. don't even have cops Exactly. They, they just replaced the cameras. cops with cameras, right, exactly. So, yeah, and you know, um, so they're looking at us. And the, the FBI apparently has this thing where they're looking at us through our webcams, um, on our computers. Not me. I got tape on mine, bitch. Right. Yeah. Good. Good move. You I should watch a middle-aged man beat off. You're on your own. <laughs> Can't fucking get it from me. They might even want that information. Let's just <clears throat> go ahead. I beat off the normal stuff. You want to ask me? I'll show you. I'll, I'll send you the links. <laughs> but but I'm not a 
you know, I'm not hiding anything. If I was, like, say if yeah. I was a person in a position of influence and I was, mm -hmm. you know, concerned about my future and my position in the company and they found out that I was only watching tranny porn. Exactly. Sorry if I, I said tranny. You're not yeah. allowed to say tranny anymore. Yeah, right. Transgender porn. Yeah, Dan Savage, of all people, got into trouble for using the word tranny. Isn't can that you, hilarious? Can you believe that shit? Well, yeah. how about the guy who runs Bravo? What is his name? Um, Cohen? Andy Cohen? He got in oh. trouble for saying twink. Oh, I didn't know that. Calling okay. someone yeah. a perfect twink. Right. Like, you can't say twink. There's people out there that are just fucking professional victims, mm -hmm. you know? And that's what, full circle, brings us back to what we were talking about when it came to colleges. And that's one of the reasons why I want to play Dear Woman for you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have it? Yep. Did you pull it up? You, ha you have to see this. Because okay. this, this is the white knight encapsulated. This is the white knight ideology encapsulated in the most ridiculous form. My blood pressure is about to go up. No, it's, you're going to love it. Okay. It's beautiful. We stand before you today as men committed to becoming more conscious in every way. We feel deep love, great respect, and a growing sense of worship for the gifts of the feminine. We also feel deep sorrow about the destructive actions of the unconscious masculine in the past and present. We want to apologize and make amends for those actions today so that we can move forward together into a new era of co-creation. Isn't this beautiful? As I become more conscious, I grow mm, more, always aware more conscious. of the play of masculine and feminine energy in me, <laughs> in you, Isn't he beautiful? in the of life. I know that we all have access to the full spectrum of these energies. <laughs> I also have a growing spectrum. awareness of the dimension beyond all dualities. Free and open like the sky. <laughs> like the sky. I commit to owning Look and stewarding guy. a masculinity that honors and celebrates us as equals. I know nice that in order ring. to truly honor you as a multidimensional woman, I must stand fully present with myself Whoa. and own the gifts I have to share with you. We can create great miracles together. Oh my God. By nurturing each other in a conscious way. By Psychos. treating each other with reverence and respect. Psychos. And by worshiping the divinity expressed in the masculine and the feminine energies. What? As men, our relationship to the feminine has often been unconscious. I feel sorrow that women and feminine energy have for so long been subjugated and oppressed. Throughout history, men have raped and abused. This goes on for eight minutes. Yeah, we can stop <laughs> any moment now. Oh, look, they're playing a theatrical version of, of pain. a woman on the, of suffering. on the stake. Bard, you're from religious and political law. Okay, stop right here. You know what it reminds me of a little bit? You know, purity balls? You know, where like yes. the girls, the daughters. Didn't the Jonas and, bracelets, they had a purity yeah, bracelet for the Jonas Brothers. The, the dad's <laughs> like embracing his daughter and then pledging <laughs> purity. It's something, there's like a vibe, a vibe there that reminds me of that. Yeah, That's, and then Will um, Ferrell yeah. did a Funny or Die uh, parody of it that this guy fucking, that, that guy reacted to it in a very negative way. It was kind of funny. Oh, was he aggressive and violent about uh, it? Was he was he, upset. Was he, was he upset? Oh, he was mocking. Was angry? That's a masculine trait. He's, he was saying... Who I, are I these weirdos? I didn't even, I've never heard of this. weirdos. They're just losers. Okay. They're guys that chicks don't want to fuck, so they come up with new <laughs> strategies. This is what I've always said, and this is un very unfortunate, but it is, is, is reality when it comes to men. Men are slimy fucks who are making sperm 24 hours a day, and we want to have sex. Mm. And here's the deal. If we're heterosexual... And ladies, if you see a guy and you don't want to fuck him, don't trust him. 
Because if you don't want to fuck him, chances are a bunch of other girls don't want to fuck him either. And so he has to develop tricks in order to stay in the game. And one of the best tricks is to separate himself from the pack by saying, Dear woman, <laughs> I recognize the duality. Yeah. You fucking dork. I know what you're doing. You need, I want to take that guy hunting. I want to put him mm. on a fucking, give, give him a rifle, make him hike up to the top of the hill and find your own food. He's lacking in all masculine positive traits. He's, w- he's fucking cowering. I'd rather be a woman. I want to take him to a singles bar. See Anywhere. He, see how he does. No, but wait, wait, any woman who's not out of her fucking mind would be That's creeped the question. out by him I mean, in a heartbeat. How successful is that? Yeah, you know? Completely unsuccessful. doesn't well, work at all. How many views did it get? Well, probably a million, but everyone's yeah. mocking it. Just for fun, yeah, right. Yeah, everyone's yeah. just like, what the fuck? I've probably seen it 100,000 myself. <laughs> it's fucking preposterous. He's, he's a goofball. But, but there's a lot of those goofballs out there that are separating themselves from the herd. They see a group of people that are reacting to the douchebags of the world, and there are asshole men and frat boys and fuckheads and bros that are ruining everything for everybody else mm-hmm. and aggressive shitheads and then they see this and they say I'm going to separate myself from that I'm going to be the guy who only eats fucking vegetable matter and I you know I I, I don't even use mass produced deodorant I just and rub I rocks never on my watch porn never never yeah there's a great video on that as well yeah. that I watched. This guy gave a TED talk about what's wrong with porn. I think I know who that. Um, Spanish te- accent. At, oh no, there's a guy who teaches at Tech uh, Tech UT Austin. Yeah, does this. Yeah, he's kind of Robert Jensen. He's the leader of this movement against mm. men's movement against pornography. Right. Well, how? What about men <sighs> doing pornography with men? There's a problem with the anti-pornographic movement is what you were talking about earlier is that the idea is that sex is bad. Oh, yeah. And sex is not bad. And no one is trying to stop gay porn. Here's the thing. Unless you're you're some sort of a fucking churchgoer and you think that homosexuality is evil, there's no movement to stop gay guys from making gay porn. No men are out there going, we need to stop these gay men from abusing each other in gay porn. No, they like fucking each other. They do it for fun. They enjoy the shit out of it. And guys like Dan Savage, he'll openly talk about how he, I mean, he was on the podcast just going Mm -hmm. off about how he watches gay porn. Sure. No no one has a problem with it. Zero people have a problem with it. Pornography is the most democratic institution in our society. How's that work? There is no desire that is not catered to in pornography. There is no body image that is not sold as an object of desire in pornography. Little dicks. There's no little dick porn. All right. There's one. Okay, fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, but if if you think about, you know, people, I've heard pornographers say this, you know, what, what is your, what is the thing you hate about your body the most, right? You will find people paying for that. In pornography, it's probably to, true, to look at right? that, yeah. Well, right. that's the thing about having the the reach that you have with the internet. It's like you'll find a group of people out there, and that's one of right. the weird things about any like really, uh, really c- crazy ideology is that you'll find a bunch of people that agree with you on your adoption of Sharia law, and mm-hmm. then they'll <laughs> gravitate to you like a magnet. Mm-hmm. You know, Sam Harris t- turned me on to this video. It was a terrifying video of these guys, and I believe they were in Norway or one of those countries that's, like, really open to uh, various religions coming there. And there's these guys that are doing this Muslim, uh, they're doing this speech, and they're talking about the, the idea of radical Muslim. They're laughing at people calling things radical Muslims. And he, in, in the video, he starts saying, how many of you agree with what it says in the Quran about... 
about the way homosexuals should be treated. Everybody raises their hand. That homosexuals should be stoned and that whatever it says by whatever God's law is would be the very best way to handle a situation. And they all raise their hand. And he's like, this is, are you radical? Are you not radical? You're just Muslims. And he's like laughing at it, thinking that, I mean, the way Harris described it to me, he's like, this guy is saying something that he's, he has so much confidence in it. He's like saying it almost like you would say, the best way to stop tooth decay is brushing your teeth. Like something mm. everybody knows. Mm -hmm. And he's saying it like that confident. But he's talking about stoning homosexuals. He's talking, you know, I mean, it's incredible. He's talking about women being able to vote. He's talking about women, you know, having second class citizenship status. But this is just how it is in the, in the Quran. Mm -hmm. And they're all agreeing with him. And it's, it's, it's an unbelievable video to watch. Because mm -hmm. you watch it, you realize like, wow, there are people like that out there. And they're all... You know, they're all praising Allah and in this video, and they're all joining together in this. And it's just a large group of thousands of people. And they're, they found themselves. Sure. They, found, they found people like them. They put this video, and they took this video and mm. put it online. And I think the, the, net, the title of the video is, It's Not Radical Islam. Right. You know? Sure, they exist. The question is what to do about them. Right. So Sam Harris wants to kill them, you know. I mean, he's, he's an interventionist. He wants do you to, think he wants to kill them? Well, he certainly has said things that sound like that. I mean, he's, he's a big interventionist. Um, he, you know, he's, there's a moment in his book where he, it looks like he's advocating nuclear assault on people in the Middle East, and he has sort of backed away from that. Um, I don't know exactly what, what he the, intends, but... Do you remember the context? <clears throat> well, he says that, you know, if, if you have, you know, X million people who are committed to this fanatical genocidal jihad um then the nuclear option might make sense i mean you have to read the book for yourself and he has which, he has back he has sort of backed down from that which book was this um i can't remember but mm, i can't remember which one, one of those yeah he that, that is it's, a, it's a very sort of infamous quote from him but mm. and you know he'd have to speak for himself about what that actually means but no, there's no question that he's an interventionist a military intervention he wants military intervention against them that's that's clear um the question is what 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 would that produce? Would that? And my argument is it would produce more of them, right? Right, right. So, well, I, I've always been fascinated by the left's adoption of the term Islamophobia, and that mm -hmm. Islamophobia is one thing that is very—it's um, very chic. It's in style to call someone out on Islamophobia while mocking Christianity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, mm -hmm. it's 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 an interesting thing. Like you're allowed to mock Scientology, you're allowed to mo mock Mormonism. Oh, it's yeah. a very valid point of debate. The fact that uh, Mitt Romney was a Mormon, he's essentially a cult member. His family came from Mexico. They fleed to Mexico so that they could have more wives. I mean, this is undeniable. Right. And it's 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 all fair game and on the table. But Islamophobia. Is, is interesting. Well, it's just that, I mean, I'm not a fan of that, but it is that Islamophobia has particular political applications right now. Right. Whereas the Mormons are safe in Utah. No one's talking about invading Utah <laughs> and killing the Mormons, right? Um, yeah, I mean, I, look, if, I, if, if, if they ever came over here and tried to convert Los Angeles into Sharia, you know, Sharia regime, give me a fucking AK-47, you know, and I'll shoot him in the head myself. My point is going out there and stopping them from doing it to other people is simply going to create more of them. And more importantly, it's going to actually cause them to wish harm on me, mm -hmm. to do harm to me. 
Right. I was in I was in New York in 9/11. You know, I don't want that to happen. That's no, no doubt about it. I just uh, I'm I'm looking at it in the terms of why is it acceptable to stand up for one religion and that religion it's just because it's been used in such bad ways recently that's all it's been used to justify these terrible wars mm -hmm. right it was used to justify the war in iraq and afghanistan and in syria and the rest of it now yeah i agree with you it's hypocritical it's a double standard um um yeah i have nothing good to say about islam nothing and I certainly have nothing good to say about that variant of Islam that is practiced by the people in ISIS or Al-Qaeda or the Taliban. Um, yeah, but so what, right? It's like right. there's all there are people all over the world who have ideas that are abhorrent to me. That's such a, it's such a fascinating debate. It's such an, an interesting take. Like, which way do you go? Do you go in, mm -hmm. hey, let them be crazy over there? Yeah. Or do you say, listen, that crazy over there is going to eventually come over here. We got to figure out a way to yeah. plan ahead or we're going to run into a bad situation that's going to be out of control. It's about aggression. So it's about who uses aggression. Right. right? So if they aggress against me, hell yeah, it's on. And right? so you feel like these- but they haven't aggressed the, against the, me. The few people that have been killed over there, the few reporters that have been snatched up and had their heads cut off on video, like this is it's such a small amount- yeah, I mean, I, hmm. I mean, well, the, it's not the, good. The, no, of course not. The ISIS argument is that they are an extension of the U.S. military. Um, that that's they're an, they're an extension of U.S. imperialism is what they say. Mm -hmm. Th those reporters. I'm not in any way justifying what happened to them. I think some of them have been British too, right? Yeah, well, right. Well, the Brits are an intervening right. too. Yeah. Um, so you know, I don't know, but I mean, the the point is they are, as I said, they're trying to bait us in, which they succeeded in doing. Look what we're doing today. We're yeah, bo we're bombing them right now as we speak. And what, so what will we get from that? Are we going to kill all 30 or 50,000 of the ISIS fighters? Are we going to do that? The only way to do that is to send in the entire fucking 82nd Airborne and more and chase them down on the ground and kill every last one of them, which I don't even think is possible. So, you know, and what you're doing is you're creating more anti-American hatred in that region from which they can recruit. Endless war, 1984. Fuck. What's what's the way that this can be fixed? <laughs> Get out, man. That's it. Yeah. It's the only way. Yeah. The Rand Paul way. Yeah. Whereas Hillary Clinton... Hell no. She wants to chase him to the ends of the earth. Sure. But she's the one who's been in the office. What did she's been there for... What did the Joe Biden just say? Shit. He just said, we're going to chase ISIS to the gates of hell. Whoa. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly where you're going to take us. <laughs> you're right. That's exactly... Did he really say that? Yeah, he did about He's two weeks ago. Boy. I remember when Joe Biden... We used to do Joe Biden night at a comedy club because Joe Biden got caught being a plagiarist. Oh, yeah? Do you remember that? Mm -mm. Oh, you don't know that. Mm -mm. Interesting. Joe Biden, when he was running for president, I believe... I, okay, I started stand-up comedy in 1988, so it had to be close on people's minds. So it was somewhere around then... Joe Biden got in trouble. He was running for president, and uh, he gave a speech that was a direct ripoff of one of Kennedy's speeches. Hmm. And uh, they said, oh, you know, he has speech writers. He didn't even know. But, I mean, they didn't even fucking bother changing the words. They just plagiarized the shit out of Kennedy. And so we used to do Joe Biden night at Stitch's Comedy Club. And uh, what we'd do is, like, uh, I would go up and do one of my friend's acts, and he would go up and do me. And we would do each other's act as a joke. And they called it Joe Biden night. Oh, my God. So I was, you know, and he never ran for president again after that. Because of that. Because of that. Because you fucked with him so badly. No, because of <laughs> that, because everyone knew that, I mean, there was like, because I remember it, I, I guarantee you other folks 
that are in the know, especially politically in the parties, they know like that's a big skeleton in this closet. Like, uh. look, dude, you could be vice president. Yeah. No one's going to dig too deep. But if you ever get to be president, like, why did you plagiarize fucking Kennedy, man? Yeah, I, I kind of like Biden in the way in the sense that he's he's uh, not very filtered. Mm-hmm. Right. He doesn't edit much his thoughts <laughs> right. so like what he said about obama during the race you know he's like well people like him because he's clean and articulate you know <laughs> right <laughs> people white people like black guys who are clean and articulate and well-spoken and know? thin yeah and, and seems yeah. yeah they look seems yeah. healthy yeah exactly he's it's not, like he jogs a lot and he, stuff yeah, he's not Lil wayne yeah, yeah he's safe he's okay <laughs> Uh, I think he, I thought he was right. You know, I thought, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was correct, and he got into all this shit about it. Well, there's no doubt. We like white people that are clean and articulate as well. Yeah. I mean, if you you sure. got a Rob Ford guy running for president, <laughs> and he's he's done pretty well in his political career. You know, I mean, in Canada, yeah, <laughs> Canada's a different animal, man. I They're, guess so. It's a totally different animal up there. I'm, I'm Team Ford, man. I like you him. like him? Well, no, I'm just What's kidding. Brothers running. I'm now? just kidding. I, I mean, it's just the fact. You know, it's. I'm all about individual freedom, you know, and like if you're if you're smoking crack, I don't care as long as you run the city correctly, you know. Yeah, why is it okay that he drinks whiskey, but it's not okay if he smokes exactly. crack? Exactly. There you go. Yeah, I mean that that well, that's the tremendous North American double standard, right? Yeah, the double Which standard. You, you know about all too well, right? Sanctioned drugs. Yeah, yeah. Come on, I mean alcohol compared to weed. Please. Yeah. The destructiveness of alcohol. Well, not only that, the self-awareness aspects of it, the the blinding you to your actions aspect of alcohol, which is the whole thing. Look, everyone's talking about being intoxicated and intoxication leading to rape. No one's talking about stoned rape, okay? And it's not a coincidence. Exactly. It's it's even though marijuana is illegal, marijuana is something that I believe probably causes less rape than any other intoxicant you could ever take. Absolutely. Yeah. It makes you paranoid and self-aware Absolutely. and sensitive and you're also more aware of other people's feelings and Oh yeah. It's probably the least likely to rape drug exactly. voted ever. I, of course. <laughs> of course. It makes you less aggressive. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. And there's just one of them. I mean, all of the psychedelics and marijuana is not thought of as a psychedelic, but I think it's very much psychedelic. It is. Yeah. They're all illegal. Well, that's sort of changing too. What, you know, what do you, how do you feel about that? I mean, it's an interesting thing seeing the economic aspects of legalization, state, not federal. <laughs> Because the states have adopted these new policies in California, in uh, Colorado, rather, and in Washington State, and now other states are looking at it and wondering whether or not they should dive in because mm-hmm. of the amount of profit that they're making tax-wise. Yeah, substantial, I, uh, substantial I, money. So I'm for total decriminalization, legalization tomorrow of all drugs. Period. Okay. So, um, but I actually voted against. Was it 17 uh, in California? Prop 17. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you read it, it was, and a lot of people were saying this, it was written by this guy in Oakland who was going to be the new corporate chieftain of the weed industry. And it was written in a way that was going to make it very difficult for the mom and pops in Humboldt to exist, to survive, to compete, really? to compete. Yeah, because it was going to be full of regulations, right? Um, so the state was going to regulate the shit out of it. So it was some sneaky shit. And most likely, you know, it, what, this wasn't stated, but what else is going to happen? They're going to go to your little farm in Arcata, California, and they're going to be like, what is that hippie doing there? Right. He's wh- You got all these guys who were like long haired and they're, they're high and they're, you know, they're not good workers. It's, you know, they're going to regulate and say, I'm sorry, this is not. 
this is not up to snuff. We're going to have to shut you down. Mm-hmm. The guy who's going to run the Walmart of weed in the Oak, in that giant Oakland warehouse he was going to establish in the East Bay up there, oh, he's going to be fine because he's going to be super regulated. He's going to be very clean. All his employers are going to be vetted. They're not going to be potheads. He'll be politically connected be, to all the right and people. And, of course, politically connected. So a lot of the, a lot of the Humboldt growers were opposed to that proposition for that reason because they saw it forcing them out and giving handing the reins over to the big and uh, these big corporate entities and pharmaceuticals so the the prediction was and i thought it was right that the big pharmaceutical companies were going to move in and take over and make it into a big corporate industry and as i think that's starting to happen in colorado i've seen i've seen some evidence of that in what way um, it's just that there's sort of a monopolization going on that the state regu- state regulation often leads to the creation of monopolies, right? Because it, it makes it difficult to enter an industry, right? If, if it's something, if an industry is heavily regulated, you have to meet all these criteria to enter it as a legitimate licensed business, it becomes more difficult, right? So the existing entity, the large corporation that's already there gets protected by these regulations. It's called uh, regulatory capture, is the concept. Um, and so I think that's what's going to happen. Um, so I, th- I want no regulation. Mm-hmm. None. Just legal. Yeah. Just yeah. Let, us, let us grow it and smoke it. When you say decriminalization, do you think that it should be legal to sell things like cocaine and heroin? Yes. And yeah. Heroin especially is a tricky one, right? Because people associate that with damaged lives and destruction. And So the, the, the quick one word answer to that is Portugal. Right. Mm-hmm. So Portugal decriminalized all that shit. I mean, there's some regulations there, but they decriminalized all those drugs uh, more than 10 years ago. Well, that is the difference between decriminalization and legalization. Legalization, like if you're selling pottery, nobody's going to give you a hard time. Anyone can sell pottery. But if you get caught with pottery, nobody gives a shit. But if you get caught with drugs in the decriminalized state, well, then you don't get in trouble. Right. But if you're selling it. Yeah. It's a different animal. Yeah, I want I want the state to have nothing to do with it at all. So if you but anyway, so in, in Portugal, a great study was done by Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and the Cato Institute about f- three or four years ago, looking at the ten years of decriminaliza- decriminalization in Portugal, and what they found was de- decrease in the number of HIV cases, not surprising. Uh, decrease in the number of uh, the decrease decrease in the addiction rate, which is amazing, and a decrease in usage. <laughs> People actually use it less. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So well, there you forbidden. go. People want to do things that are forbidden. It's a natural impulse yeah. of human beings. You try to resist and we try to do it. Creation just, of a taboo creates a desire. Yeah. yeah. It's a, that's a, such a bizarre thing that we have this <clears throat> attachment controlling people's access to consciousness enhancing or, or, or altering substances. Yeah. We're completely committed to this idea and we will we'll pitch it as if it's the only logical explanation or the only logical course of business like you know you're gonna what are you gonna have the streets filled with a bunch of reefer heads right well you look at what's going on in colorado they have like the lowest rate of drunk driving accidents ever right they have a lower rate of murder than they've ever had before they have a lower rate of lower rates of violent crimes and then they had in a decade right like all these things are happening like right in front of everybody's face Right. Undeniable aspects of the legalization of, of cannabis, a drug which makes people more peaceful. That's right. I mean, it just does. That's right. I mean, nope. it doesn't make everybody more peaceful, but it's pretty fucking good at it. Pretty much, yeah. And so if we decriminalized heroin tomorrow, are you going to start shooting smack That's, the But next I'm an day? adult. The, the, <laughs> the, the question is, is keeping it from young people, just making it more difficult to get, is that going to keep... One kid from becoming a junkie. If it is, is it worth it? I, I don't. I see that argument, but I don't think that it jives with human nature. 
And that's why I would say that legalization of all drugs would probably be better. And also, you're creating, when you create laws, when people violate those laws, they become criminals and you put them in jail. And that's where things get really fucked up. Right. Because then you have what we have in this country, which we have privatized prisons. And there is not just one. It's not, we're not talking about one. We're talking about many privatized prisons. So you have a prison industrial complex mm-hmm. al- along with these laws that, that has a vested interest in keeping these laws active. So then you have l- unions, like you have the prison guards union, which lobbies to keep these drugs legal or illegal, illegal. rather, uh, along with pharmaceutical drug companies, th- which form a partnership for a drug-free America. And my joke was that's like, hookers making commercials against strippers like a partnership for a drug-free america going out against weed is it's literally like hookers right. saying strippers are bad you know like, right. like we're, they're immoral right. like we're better like it's, it's it, yeah why do kids smoke cigarettes a lot of right. it is because there's a taboo on it right because it's being yeah. bad it's being rebellious right it's also like it's cool man yeah but it's, it's cool moody. because it's bad <laughs> It's cool because it's bad. Mm. Right? Well, it's also there's a, a there's a certain romanticism involved in just ruining your life. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know true. what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just fucking self-destructive drinking and just, it's sexy. Ah, it's yeah, the, it's the rock star self-destructive sexiness. Yeah, right? he's doing yeah. coke. He's fucking no. just w- gets up. T- can't keep a job. Right. Boss call. You're fired, Wilson. Fuck you. Right. The guy's a rebel. Look at his jacket. He's got a fucking fucked up leather jacket. <laughs> he gets on his motorcycle in the rain. You know, it's like this. <laughs> he drives this. off a cliff. <laughs> and every, and he's and then he's a like international superstar. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in those those movies, those those shitty Arnold Schwarzenegger cop movies, like there's always the scene where he's like his his breakfast is like he pours a a fucking couple slices of pizza into a blender and <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like the there's something about self-destruction about people that yeah. are drinking whiskey first thing in the morning that we find them romantic. Well, it's because we're told all day long to be good and healthy mm. and pure, right? Yes. There you go. There's the puritanism again, right? It's actually it's rejection true. of that. You know? Oh, it is, right? Yeah. That That is so goddamn true. That's the best way to create sluts. I'm not slut-shaming, by the way. <laughs> um, when I was a kid... We all knew. Catholic Everyone, girls. Exactly. I didn't even have to say it. My first girlfriend was one, yeah. Fuck so. yeah, I had one too. Yeah. <laughs> bitch was a freak. I say bitch with all due respect. She's a nice person. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, this poor girl was so pent up mm-hmm. that you would get her alone. I mean, I remember I was in the movie theater with her. I just grabbed her breast and she started heaving and talking. <gasps> like, it was like the world was like like Satan was at her door prodding her in the ass with a pitchfork. <laughs> he was. He yeah. Was. He in was. her eyes. He was at her door. Yeah. But isn't it crazy that that is a direct response to suppression? Mm-hmm. This poor girl was so pent up. The way I described her is like, if like, she had sex with anybody who asked. Hmm. Like she was so crazy. Hmm. This girl, and she was beautiful. But y- I, I said that like, a, if you put a dick in front of her, it was like rolling a ball of yarn in front of a kitten. Like they couldn't help themselves. Like there's uh. just some something about the, what they did, like suppre- making it all evil and dark in Catholic school. They couldn't wait to just get out of that place mm-hmm. and run, yeah. just run to freedom. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. It's a schizophrenic culture we live in. It's not just Catholics, right? It's sort of Americans generally. I mean, we're told both things simultaneously all day long. Sex is bad. Watch out. Be careful. And fuck, 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 fuck. And here's a bikini, chick in a bikini. and you know, Selling cars. And yeah. porn is a bigger industry than the automobile industry. But it's p- terrible. Yeah. Right. But, who it's, cares but it's terrible. If it goes under. And it's, it must be secret. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. 
Well, remember when um, it was interesting, the porn people were asking for a bailout. It was like sort of a publicity stunt. <laughs> but the, the reality is that like that industry was crippled. I mean, that industry had its legs taken out by the internet. I mean, there was, there was a guy that used to live in my neighborhood who's a porn producer. And, uh, you know, he was living high on the hog. He had like a fat Mercedes, lived in this big ass house. And, and they, his house eventually went up. It was bankrupt. He hmm. went bankrupt. And they, they fucking, they sold that bitch. They took it from him. Yeah. Foreclosed on it. I knew a major porn producer who just died actually recently. Um, but he, um, he said they were figuring out ways to monetize it. And I, I didn't quite understand it, but the, the tube channels and all that stuff, he said mm-hmm. they actually figured out a way to get revenue out of that. And I'm not sure how, hmm. but anyway, yeah. Fucking stealing people's credit card numbers. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> getting <laughs> getting videos of you jacking off to it on those little web cameras. There you go. That the yeah. FBI is watching. Yeah, let them watch. How many are they going to watch? A lot, apparently. 300 million people. How many FBI people do you got that are keeping an eye on people jerking off? <laughs> it's like, you're, you're going to go blind. Gosh. You fucking people are going to be staring at monitors all day. Can Everyone's you imagine? Coke bottle glasses. They're going to stumble Gosh. out of that fucking place into the, I think into I, the light of day. I think day. I'd rather work in a coal mine than have that job. <laughs> <laughs> Similar effects, I'm sure. Yeah. Similar effects. Good Lord. Yeah, what a strange culture. Mm-hmm. Now, you're, you're a grown adult with children and a college professor and you're you're faced with all these contradictions and this ridiculous way we're living our life in this society like how frustrating is it for you to see things so clearly hmm. but yet see this schizophrenic bizarre society that you're forced to exist in <laughs> i live in hell <laughs> i mean yeah i mean in a way it's true it's like i god i don't know yeah no i'm just angry a lot are you? Yeah, seriously. Really? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sort of angry much of the day. Yeah, I mean, reading the news, reading people's opinions, um, reading my colleagues' work, and <laughs> seeing what they're doing with eight, nineteen-year-old girls. And yeah, I mean, that's it's, what's um, even crazier. It's like, it's 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 even in college, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's like humans are fucked. Yeah, I'm pissed and, off. I yeah, I've been talking to f- some friends about this. It's like you know, um, Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living, and actually, I'm beginning to think that <laughs> it's too painful to live. You know, I just whoa, you're fucking deep in I, this. I'd rather be ignorant sometimes. Really? Sometimes. Start drinking, son. Sometimes I used to do that. Yeah, do you? Yeah, gave it up. Irish, Russell. Partly. Partly. Yeah. Enough. I see the freckles. Irish enough. You got it in you, kid. Oh yeah. <laughs> Sure do. Sure do. So you used to drink to try to avoid reality? Um, yeah, basically. Just yeah. to self-medicate. Calm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was like an escape. It was totally an escape. Do you think there's a certain amount of paying attention to the world that may perhaps be detrimental to the individual? Like there's 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 a certain there's a certain gauntlet they all we all have to sort of run to live our lives. Regulations that we have to follow, as preposterous as they may be. But I've often often wondered. There's like this struggle between trying to think about how much should I just concentrate on enjoying my time here mm. and being nice to people, doing what I can mm-hmm. to just enjoy my time. There's your ludicrous bit. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. Or completely getting immersed in all the intricacies of the, the, the bullshit. I don't know. Jesus Christ. I don't know. I mean, I've been an intellectual my whole life. My family's all intellectual. It's all we've done is just talk about the world and study the world and talk about it and talk about it. And get and most of it is negative, right? It's right. not like, oh, it's all, you know, foreign of course. American foreign policy is great, you know. Um and it's painful and it hurts and it's like some of and so much of it is literally about life and death and people dying and it's some of that some of it um man, 
I, I have a hard time recovering from. So the Michael Brown thing was bad enough in Ferguson. You know, mm-hmm. the, I don't know if you saw the video of, um, I don't know how you pronounced his name, but Kajim Powell, who was killed about two days later. He, no. he was a kid. He was cr- clearly mentally ill. He walked up to the cops and he said, shoot me, shoot me. Oh. They said he had a, a butter knife or something in oh. his hand. And there's a video of them just shooting him dead. I cried all night long. And I'm still, that was like, what, two months ago. I'm still bothered by that, you know, and knowing that that's a fairly common thing for a lot of people in this society, you know, that and if you live in a particular neighborhood, that's like a normal thing to happen. Well, aren't um, those particular neighborhoods in some way sort of like a microcosm for the issues of the world that, that it's very difficult to overcome momentum and the momentum of a terrible neighborhood, a crime ridden neighborhood sure. it's born into poverty and born into the momentum of sure. all these uh, unemployed people on welfare. Well, in that case, it's being born into a state of occupation. Mm-hmm. You know, I, yeah. think, I think that there are many of those military states. It's basically a military yeah. occupation. It is. God damn it. And you yeah. know what? And like the military is militarization of the police has only accentuated it, but it's been going on for a long time. That's why black people have just a very, very different view of police than white people do. And it's just something white people have to accept and understand. And it's hard to if you never go to Compton and never see what it's like. Um, and you don't get pulled over for simply driving or walking down the street, you know. But God damn, man. I just I, When I saw that video, I was like, okay, I'm giving up politics. I'm just – I can't do this anymore. It's too upsetting. I mean stuff like war and stuff like police violence, when I see video of it or hear about it, it's just – it devastates me. It really does. It's and the I, worst aspects of human beings right in front of you. And it, <laughs> it's not in your life. Your life, you're going yeah. where you're going. You're talking to students. You're doing yeah. your thing. And then you immerse yourself – through the internet or yeah. whatever, the media, you're, you're getting yeah. this vision of the worst parts yeah. of, of humans. Yeah, there's certain things, you know, and like the idea of locking people up for drugs, just putting the uh, prisons, just putting people in prisons for stuff like that. For life. There's people in prison right now for life. They're yeah, never no, getting I, out. I can't even, t- I mean, the depth of my feelings about that are just unspeakable. I mean, I just want to blow them up. Yeah. Now, when you talk about not wanting to live, though, do you... No, not wanting to think. <laughs> but you said not wanting to know. You don't want to be a part of it. You like? No. Do you I mean? Well, you you have to know though for what you do for a living, right? Exactly. That's the problem. That's the conundrum. That's exactly right. Yeah. So sometimes I just want to be like a surfer <laughs> and just smoke weed. Why do you do that? And surf because you can't make any money on it. And also, I'm not. But I mean, like, I'm 49. Like, I can't take. <laughs> <laughs> but can't you like? I want it a, well. You couldn't take a surfing. Your body moves well. You're moving around normal. Yeah, any no. issues? Well, like maybe. Physical issues? No, no. Like actually, ser- seriously, I wanted. <laughs> you want to go surfing? Uh, no, I wanted to be a kickboxer. Actually, like, really? Yeah, dude. I trained Muay Thai with Joe Schilling. Yeah. No, oh, no, you know Joe? Yeah. yeah no, I'm at, his, okay. I'm at his gym, the yard. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone should go to the yard. It's the greatest gym. Uh, but, you train uh, there all the time? I, I tore my ACL there three months ago. But until then, yeah, six days a week. Yeah. How'd you tear your ACL? Uh, tried to do a flying knee. <laughs> And landed funny. Oh man! I know. Just hitting pads and I stuff. Think, no, I was all by myself with a heavy bag, and I just did oh a, no, I just did a flying knee. Just stupid. It was nothing. I just and I landed. It's you know, like a lot of ACLs are just that kind of thing, right? Where you I just, tore mine kicking a bag. Yeah, I've tore, tore both of them. That's what it was, kicking a fucking heavy bag, mm-hmm. right? And I was like, yeah. well, actually, got loosened up. A guy kicked me in the side. I, I'm bad at checking leg kicks. Oh, so he kicked you the side. He loosened of the leg. me up. It loosened like a week before that, and then mm-hmm. this thing. I think that's what happened. But yeah, no, I was like. <laughs> I wish I could just do this. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah. See, but that's why I love an intellectual though. Don't aren't you aware of the <sighs> negative impact? You mean of the, the whole brain damage? Yeah. yeah. I know. No, fuck. That's the whole thing. I know it's such a bummer, and like I'm just. I know. So, but you spar. Yeah. 
And, and do you notice any difference? Well, no, but I've just been more and more worried about it, right? It's like I'm just constantly worried about it, and that's the problem. So I yeah. don't know. To, and now I don't know what to do. Like, I'm, I'm 40 fucking nine, and I'm, like, going in there, and they want me to fight. They want you to fight? They've asked me to fight. Really? Yeah. Fight what? Like an amateur bout? <laughs> yeah, like a smoker. Yeah. Just, like, to, so they can get press? No, just because that's what they do. Because that's what they, they do. They train fighters. They yeah. train fighters. They train fighters, yeah. And they, well, of course. And, it's one of the big Muay Thai gyms in California. Yeah. So, and, and they, yeah, so smokers are, you know, there's... Whatever. So you're training, and they're like, "Listen, take this to the next place. <laughs> yeah, the next Joe, places you have a fight." Yeah, Joe's trainer, who he owns the gym with, Mark Camaro, he, mm -hmm. he said, "Hey, we should get you a fight." And I like laughed at him because <laughs> I was like, "Come on, man, I'm 40 fucking." I mean, the guys—they're all like 25 year old right. ripped Korean dudes and stuff. And I, um, my friend Steve is almost 60, and uh, he's yeah? been my friend. He's been my friend since we were—I was 15 when I met him. And he was uh, an Air Force flight surgeon, and he was uh, doing his residency for ophthalmology. He's just a wild man. He's always been doing something. Huh. And he's a doctor now in Arizona. But he's the reason why I became a stand-up comedian, because <laughs> he, he talked me into doing it when I was young and I was fighting. My point being, this guy to this day is ready to take a fight. 60? And his, oh, yeah. He's wow. close, closing in on 60. He'll take a fight tomorrow. Wow. Get, his problem is he was on the U.S. ski team. He's a madman. Okay. okay. Yeah, clearly. And he had at least 10 operations on his knees. Both of his knees looked like, like a fish that you filleted yeah. and then stitched back together again because right. ha he had his knees done in the 80s when they would take your hamstring. They the way they would reconstruct your ACL was mm -hmm. they would use your hamstring so they would cut you open like a big line on the side. Like I'm, sh I'm sure they did yours probably. Did they do a PCL? No, I haven't done surgery yet. You haven't? No, no, no. It's not that bad. I mean, they tell me it's not that bad. Yeah, no. You did an MRI? Yeah, got an What did the MRI say? Partial partial yeah. how much they didn't tell me they didn't no why didn't they tell you i don't know <laughs> where'd you go kaiser <laughs> well, okay that's no good yeah we'll talk afterwards okay good i'll, yeah. I'll hook uh, you yeah. up with a real doctor okay no, not i'm not a real doctor but a yeah, doctor yeah. That a, deals better, with a better doctor yeah that's he, what i needed I needed general sports. practitioners are just not well no he's an orthopedist but yeah even an orthopedist that doesn't deal with real athletes right is gonna say oh you're okay you just walk around that's and you're fear. gonna be fine that means you got a bum knee for the rest of your life that's ready to give out oh shit depending upon how much of a partial tear yeah i mean if it's 10 percent tear yeah let it rehab i got no percentage from them yeah you need to know okay and you need a, a guy who's an expert at reading MRIs. Yeah. I've had two different MRIs done on my back, one of them that was shit and one of them that was really clear, hmm. and it was much different results. Mm. You know, it's... it's I'm dying, man. I got to get back in there. Because I was sure. as, I, as I was saying, like, when I'm in the gym, you know, as you know, you, that's all you think about, mm -hmm. right? It's all, everything else goes away. Right. ISIS is gone, foreign policy, history's yes. gone, blah, 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 academia, fuck that shit. It's all yeah. gone. I'm just thinking about that, that fist coming at my face, right? Or even if I'm just working on the bag, it's all, it's just beautiful. And I just, I wish, <laughs> I just often wish I could just do that. Or like, I want to move to Thailand and do that thing. Right? Really? Yeah. Like go to Phuket? And oh my God. And just live there on whatever it is. My I'll, friend Mark did that. He's five in his bucks 50s. a day. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know. He's a financial advisor and yeah. he went to Thailand. He lived there for a month. Yeah. And just, <laughs> and belonged to one of those gyms, changed my last name to Fairtex or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, man. You got it bad, huh? Oh, yeah. How long did you, were you kickboxing for? Not, you had this idea. I've been, well, I started with boxing just like bullshit. Well, I took a, I took some classes at Church uh, Church Street Gym in New York when I mm -hmm. lived there. And then that was like 10 years ago. And then, but not seriously. And then I did like bullshit cardio kick. Then I joined the yard about two years ago, and, and then I just got <laughs> really into it. Oh huh? my God. When I start when I started at the yard, it was like oh, that's all I wanted to do. That's all wow. I was thinking about, dude. So I am the only PhD history professor in this country, I am sure, who has listened to you call five hundred fights. Wow. Oh yeah. No, I've watched like 
probably a majority of the UFC fights. I've watched every single Glory fight. I've watched K1. Yeah. That's interesting. I got obsessed with it about two years ago. Yeah. It sucks that it gives you brain damage. <laughs> Doesn't it? Doesn't it? We it need to does. fix this. Listen, man, when I w- it's one of the main reasons that I got into do you feel stand-up like, comedy. Do you feel like you got any? Oh, yeah. I've definitely probably really? got some. Oh, yeah. Man. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I talk okay. I was going to say, your brain's doing pretty yeah. well. For a guy who didn't graduate college, I mean, I, I, I'm fairly articulate. Um, but I definitely been hitting the head a lot, Yeah, you know, but it was all done by the time I was in my early twenties. Okay. I stopped, hmm. but I was worried. I'd get headaches. I'd lay in bed really? after sparring. I'd get headaches, but I, I was sparring with some murderers. Yeah. I've only done kind of moderate sparring, so mm-hmm. I haven't really gotten hit hard. Well, I was fighting too. I fought. Yeah. That's a different story. A lot of Taekwondo tournaments and three kickboxing bouts. Yeah. But the, um, the sparring is the da- more I dangerous know. thing. I know. Because you'd get concussed, and then guys would dust you off and push you right back in there. Right. Especially back then. When right. I was doing it, it was the late 80s. Yeah. Nobody knew what the fuck was going on with the brain. There was no real studies done. They knew when people were punch drunk, but they didn't really have a, a good grasp on traumatic brain injury. Right. I have a good friend who's a doctor, and his specialty is traumatic brain injury. And he has enlightened me in a way that's absolutely terrifying. He's like, you know... You could go waterboarding, you know, like, uh, not waterboarding, uh, jet skiing. Uh, Like, uh, what is it when they pull you behind a boat and you're fucking bouncing around? Water skiing. Water skiing. Yeah, Yeah, he's like, guys get brain damage from water skiing. He's like, no doubt about it. He's like, the pituitary gland is very sensitive. And it's get, when it gets jostled around and banged up, depending upon the individual, look, there's people that box and they're fine. And then there's people that they get hit a few times yeah. and they have all sorts of depression issues. Their body stops producing hormones properly. Uh, see? Yeah. I don't know, man. Traumatic brain injury is no fucking joke. And I have had the unfortunate experience of knowing people pre and post. I have <sighs> good friends. I'm sure you do. That I knew that, that when they started out, they were fine. And now they're not fine. Yeah, can I? This is a question. I can't believe I get this opportunity to ask Joe Rogan this. Do you? Are there UFC fighters or former UFC fighters that you're sure have it? Unquestionable. Okay, without a doubt. Yeah, no doubt about it. Like many, without a doubt. Okay. Yeah, if yeah. you stay in there long enough, it gets you. Like you can see it in some mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's in. I can think. Undeniable. I can think of a couple who are leading suspects. I would yeah. be a real piece of shit if I denied it. Yeah. It's a. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that would like me to not comment on it, but it's one of my only issues with, I don't mind broken bones. Like, I see, like, when Anderson Silva broke his leg, it was nasty, but I, I got to... Oh, I'm that's nothing weird. compared... I'm, yeah. I'll trade that for brain yeah. injury any day. I sure. was way more concerned when he got knocked unconscious. Of course. When he got knocked out, and then when he came back just a few months later, I was the one guy that was saying, he's not going to be the same. Oh, like yeah. you got to be aware like that is that's a guy that got knocked unconscious four months ago mm-hmm. he's not going to be the same mm-hmm. he's in training already he's sparring already he's not gonna be the same guy six months later he's just not there's no way around it yeah. it's one of the beautiful things that that um manny pacquiao's trainer um freddie roach has got trauma related parkinson's himself mm-hmm. so when he got knocked out by marquez mm-hmm. freddie roach was like you're not fighting for a year like you just just you mm-hmm. need to recover mm-hmm. like it's just just get that in your head now you want to keep going you're not fighting for a year it's such a bummer it's a huge and, and bummer. Then boxing's the worst clearly yeah i don't know about that man really i, mean, I, I, I used thought that to was think, pretty established i used to think that too but the reality is it's all about the training 
And in training, MMA fighters are getting hit in the head a lot. I mean, you're not getting hit in the head as much unless you're a guy who only wants to stand up. And then you're also dealing with kicks. Mm -hmm. And kicks are a different animal. You can kick so much harder than you can punch. Getting kicked in the head. I can probably kick... 10 times harder than sure. I can punch. Of course. You know, I can send a heavy bag flying across the room with a kick. Sure. And if you imagine what that can do to your fucking head, it's terrible. I've seen guys get hit in the head in in kickboxing matches and they're never the same again. Ugh. I've seen it. I've seen it with my own eyes. So that's uh, that's something to think about. So go to the ground. Yeah, learn some jujitsu, man. Daniele Bolelli, my good friend. Yeah, yeah, I love that dude. Our mutual friend. Yeah, yeah I love that dude. I, we're probably going to start. Yeah. That's the move, man. That's the intellectual yeah. pursuit because, it's, first of all, it's far more complex, relies sure. far less on athleticism, and you can do it deep into your old age. Right. You know, Elio Gracie was doing it in his fucking 80s. Yeah. You know? It's chess. Yeah. yeah, and as long as you do it with good partners, you can, you, you can really mm-hmm. go at it with, and be aware that a guy's not going to hurt you. You know, things right. happen accidentally, knees get twisted, and, you know, you fall funny. But no head injuries. No head injuries. Right. Very rarely. Right. You know, I mean, you can collide heads occasionally, but it's not the goal. You know, and getting choked unconscious really has no repercussions. It's no big <laughs> deal. You just go, you wake up, and you can actually, guys do it all the time. They get choked out, and they go back to rolling, like, yeah. moments later. Right. Yeah. I'll get you involved. I'll get you in there. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. going to get you a good doctor, too. All right, good. Dude, <laughs> thank you very much for hey. doing this, man. It was a lot of fun. Wow. Really, really, really enjoyed I it. Love we just this. Three hours just blew by. Wow, I love yeah, this. Yeah, that's it. And uh, your book. Renegade History of the United States. Uh, it's available right now. You can get it on Amazon. Is it an audio book as well? Yep. Audio. Is it you reading it? Nope. God it's sh- damn it. It's a Shakespearean actor. What the fuck? I know. Why do they do that? Did, did I don't they know. Did they resist you reading it? You'd be perfect It's hilarious. It. He does like black, like slave dialect in a Shakespearean. Son of a like bitch. Like a Shakespearean reading. That's it's hilarious. son of a bitch. But it's still good. You should still buy it. I, yes. Everyone buy it. <laughs> buy that and buy the book. Yeah. And uh, Thaddeus Russell, you can find him on Twitter. And what is your website? ThaddeusRussell.com. That's it. Thank yep. you, sir. Appreciate right, it. Man. Thank Those you. Very enjoyable. Cool. And I have to piss so badly. Sure. <laughs>